0: your hands off me you rotten rusky son of a bitch indiana jones about time you showed up mom sweetheart mom
1: welcome to the three men and a retrospective podcast indiana jones retrospective series
0: oh boy we're
1: pilgrims in an unholy land join garrett Speaks a dozen languages,
2: knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear. You'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grail already.
1: Matt, you
2: don't believe me. You will, Doctor Jones. You will become a true believer.
1: <laughs> and Adam. Maybe go home
3: now, please
1: as they go through all the films in the Indiana Jones franchise.
3: The solution presents itself.
1: With the highly anticipated James Mangold-directed Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny coming out this summer. Tickets, please. One by one, the boys will look at the entire evolution of the Harrison Ford-starring serial adventures. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. What do the guys expect out of this new film? Of the years, it's the mileage. What brought powerhouse's Steven Spielberg and George Lucas together? Nothing shocks me. Is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull really as bad as its reputation?
0: Somebody's gonna get hurt!
1: Find out the answers to these questions and many more, all coming up courtesy of Percolated Media. Okie
0: dokie, Dr. Joe's here potato.
2: Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Released June 30th, 2023. Budget on this $300 million. Good God. Box office $130.5 million. And this, for the first and last time of this series, is directed by James Mangold. Matt, we've talked about James Mangold in the past, haven't we?
3: This is the second retrospective where he has taken over a franchise after a movie that was lambasted by a lot of fans because he took over Wolverine when that was in the crapper.
2: He did and he made one good one and one so-so one that I always thought was overrated.
0: Uh, Of course you did.
2: Go back to that Logan podcast. I was not a huge fan of that film although Adam, it sounds to me like you were since you weren't even on that series.
1: I wasn't on that series but yeah other than my uh, my Let's just call it displeasure over your New mutant score was also your your Logan score. (laughs) Because, yes, I unabashedly
2: adore that film in each and every way. So you, Adam, were probably looking forward to seeing what he did with Indy, weren't you?
1: I did, but I was also a little apprehensive. I was hoping it would not be just kind of a retread of Logan, but as a filmmaker, you know, to go down this road. I like James Mangold a lot, going all the way back to Copland, which I think is a ridiculously underrated film that I think Stallone deserved a nom for. That's how much I like that thing. I think he tells stories that are different, but with familiar characters, and I'm really happy to see what he's going to be doing with DC. But yeah, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, I'm quite high on the mangle.
2: Oh, did you see 310 of Yuma?
1: I never saw Three to I've heard it's fantastic. I think Matt champions that film quite a bit, but I've not seen it.
2: But I was still apprehensive going into this because while people praise the man, and I praised him for a movie that not a lot of people like. I like The Wolverine. Not a lot of people do. I enjoy the over-the-topness of that. When he's coming back to not only a franchise, but a much-beloved franchise, a franchise a lot of people, like myself, grew up watching. To take it from the reins of Steven Spielberg, who stepped down in 2020, I gotta say, even after kind of the high of Ford versus Ferrari, I did, I did think it was, much, it was much better than I was expecting, honestly. I was not too high going into this theater. I was not too high on expectations going in. Matt, how are your expectations, sir? It didn't matter whose name was on this. Spielberg, Mangold, could, could have been anybody. Could have been Scorsese
3: for all I cared. I could not get past the mouse. Mm. I thought James Mangold was hired. Because he's a director who is very skilled, but because he's not on the level of Spielberg, he would just do whatever Disney told him to do. Uh, You know, he's not the director who has that level of autonomy just yet. And based on the box office returns, probably won't come back to Indiana Jones or his Star Wars movie, for for all that we know. It's been 15 years since the last one. And in that time, Disney acquired everything that George Lucas has had some name in Star Wars, is the big one, and we'll talk about that later on. But they've also tried their hand at bringing Willow back to ho-hum reception. And now we've got Indiana Jones. This seemed like, based on the fact that it took this long and Spielberg wasn't going to do it, it just seemed to me that this was something that they they forced on whichever director was ballsy enough to try to replace Spielberg. I I only saw Disney's name on this. I didn't see anything else. And that's why I was, quite frankly, so disinterested in it ever since it was announced. Part of it is also the fact that Harrison Ford is pushing 80. I think he's over 80 at this point now. And he's come back to a couple of franchises to, again, mixed results. I thought there was one where he really gave it his all, and then there was one where there's more to be said on that front. So nothing nothing could happen to really get me excited for this movie
2: there has been one big champion of this movie though and that's Spielberg himself he came out of can saying and i quote i didn't think anybody but me could do this character well but i was proven wrong today he has been ch- he's been doing his best james cameron impression i don't know if it's because he gets since he has a producer's credit he gets points but he got behind this, it debuted at Cannes about, oh, a little bit over a month and a half ago at this point, at the time we record this. That still didn't raise my expectations that high. And, you know, if, if that didn't raise it, the middling reviews, I mean, this, this thing. Matt, Matt, you mentioned last week, and this is a very interesting observation you made, that Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull has a 77% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Going into this, just on a whim, I think somebody posted it, actually, 66% is what Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny had going in. Not very high. I mean, did that affect you, Matt, at all, going into this?
3: I'm glad you touched on the reviews, because I think that is a big factor, one of numerous that we'll talk about, as to why this movie is not performing the way that it, certainly, Disney wanted it to. Unlike Crystal Skull, which did not really have any advanced screenings or, or word of mouth, they kept it very, much like Area 51, they, they kept... <laughs> They kept the door slammed pretty tight. This movie did have to combat six plus weeks of a mixed reception at best. And when you're already talking about a movie that people were a certain percentage pessimistic about, and Cannes Film Festival is a very prestigious place for movies to premiere and be recognized. And it's also kind of a captive audience. So you think if anyone was going to be generous, it'd be the people who were the first to see a new Indiana Joes movie, but as we're seeing, I think that word of mouth has kept a certain portion of people away from the theaters.
1: Yeah, it's one of those weird things, because can so many of these film festivals, you'll have the most random movie, you know, get a 12-minute standing ovation, you know, by some, like, criminal filmmaker who's not even allowed in the U.S., but then you'll have movies that are saving the industry get panned. The erudite attitude by some of the people with their noses in the air sometimes just flummoxes me at at some of these. You know, they really, really do. So as much as I knew, you know, what some of their responses were, as much as I was trying to stay away from it, you couldn't really avoid that. It was, oh, ho-hum, and ho-hum might as well be, you know, translated as utter crap when it comes to trying to promote a film. You know, that's just the way that it comes across. But I think anticipation and expectations are are one of the most treasonous things to the film industry, you know, because I think everybody was like, oh, my God, okay, they're going to make another one to redeem Crystal Skull. And I think that was the thought process by everybody walking in to screenings and early reviews and things like that. So I saw it, but I always... Kind of like when the initial response is not, oh my god, best thing ever, fuck you, uh, Thor 3. Because then my expectation gets to go down a little bit, and I get to just walk in a film kind of more on an even keel. And the ho-hum response to this, I think, helped me out more than depressed me going in.
2: Interesting. Even the budget of this, $300 million, that's a lot.
1: I find some of these hard to book. I don't know. I don't know. I think some of that, like before, and we talked about this in another film, I bet $80 of that is technology that's going to be amortized over a decade because of how this movie starts off, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But that's either an all-in budget or something else, because I don't see $300 million production before marketing. I just don't.
2: I don't know what the way some of these filters are, the way some of these effects work, some of this effect work, effects work is. I, I I see it now. I don't know if it's all on screen. I think I'm with you on that. But this, you know, even without, even if the, you do take out that 80 million, that's still. I mean, the first one started off at 20 mil, you know, and now we're at we're at 220 <laughs> or 300 million dollars. That's that's quite a lot.
1: Steven Spielberg probably got a cut of this film more than the entire budget of Raiders. And
2: raters. that's why I say he's championing it probably more for his pocketbook than anything. It's
3: in line with what Disney has done, though. Look at the budget for all their yeah. Star Wars movies.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: In fact, unadjusted for inflation, Force Awakens is the most expensive movie ever made at. 447 Rise of Skywalker, 416 Last Jedi, $300 million. Look at the Marvel movie and those budgets. This is Solo, 271 I think they are front-loading a lot of their cost, because Hollywood accounting is as secretive as the Illuminati,
0: mm-hmm.
3: I think they're hedging a lot of their bet on both technology and marketing ahead of time, let alone the net profits you need as far as doubling your production budget to to break even. I'm not surprised by the budget. I, I genuinely was not, but I think it's very counterintuitive when you look at Crystal Skull, which you know people have said heinous things about and you know we weren't the most positive about it but i don't think we were as critical as most are it was 185 i think in some ways that movie looks better than Mm. this one
0: yeah
2: i'm right i'm right with you on that matt I, i don't i don't really look at budgets too much but that one really stood out to me and depending on what i've i mean i've read so many reports that say you know harrison ford made 20 million or he made 12 million or he made 10 million on this it's really really weird when i look at the accounting that goes into this I'm just just wondering, where did it go?
1: It is kind of crazy because to pull somebody out of mothballs for Star Wars, you know, I mean, technically, you know, it's, oh, he's never stopped acting.
0: Uh,
1: Harrison Ford was kind of done, you know. So whatever it took for Disney to pull him not only to Star Wars, but to pull him into Indiana Jones and to pull him into Marvel, I think – maybe the way that he's getting paid is hidden a little bit. Like I said, with that Hollywood, uh, that Hollywood financial, the only industry that's got financial accounting and financial forensics, you know, outside of the mob. But I do think that it might just be, you know, what it takes to get Harrison Ford back and not just back to, but get him back to put out an effort.
3: So two points. Number one, the same people who said Harrison Ford didn't stop acting are the same people who said Robert De Niro didn't stop acting after he stopped making movies with Scorsese in the mid-90s. And number two, the thing that scared me above everything, more than the budget, more than Disney having their clutches on it, four writers Mm. credited on this production, and that does not account script doctors and all the different changes that just happen with conventional filmmaking, Mm -hmm. really gave me pause for concern, given, as I found out last week, one of the writers on this was the main writer of Spectre. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, with these kind of movies, I always prefer a singular voice. Even if the movie sucks, there, there's a better through line. You know, even something like Thor, Love and Thunder. I get the sense there was only one writer on that.
2: Even though there's two credited, I think Taika had the
3: second writer killed and buried in the
2: desert. And Adam, you talk about why would Ford come back to this. I believe it just goes back to around 2010, 2012. They were already talking about doing this. Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. Somehow, some way, Frank Marshall is a, friend, is a Facebook friend of mine. And so I see a lot of the articles and things that he posts, and, I, and I've sent them to you guys. And mm-hmm. one of the things he has said is they always had an idea to do this because I believe they thought that Crystal Skull was not a good way to send the character off. If you go back and listen to that podcast, and like Matt said, we didn't have great things to say about it, but what I did say was I thought the ending was perfect send-off for this character. A lot like Return of the Jedi. You look at Return of the Jedi. You see the Ewoks celebrate. You see the Rebels happy. You see everybody's living happily ever after like a fairy tale. Boom. Cut off. I'm happy with that. But... We got to bring the characters back Because we got to have the fallout And so they were working on this for quite a while David Kep did a pass on this it's just, it's just the same old story Lucas and Spielberg, they couldn't agree on anything Finally they agreed on it And then when it came around time to film I mean, Spielberg always said I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in And come 2020, boom, he was out And it was Harrison Ford Who brought James Mangold in Because Harrison Ford had worked with him on Call of the Wild a film that is actually much better than I was expecting. A lot like Ford vs. Ferrari. I thought that was a pretty good film. He said, I, had a, I have a good working relationship with that guy. You can trust this guy. He's going to bring it in. He's maybe not under budget, apparently, but he's going to bring it in, and it'll be in, and it'll be on time. So, Mango was brought in. With Spielberg's blessing and Lucas, they're still on as producers, and Kathleen Kennedy has said Engels did have Lucas and Spielberg's numbers, and he could call them at any time, and they did offer insight on scripts. Spielberg was actually a very hands-on producer on this. He was in on a lot of the script meetings, and he was in in the editing room just kind of helping, saying, okay, maybe we could do this, maybe we could do that. Uh, Lucas, not so much. So I think you see hints of a Spielberg touch here. But we'll talk about it. Not much.
1: Yeah, I wonder if he just you know walked back and forth from the Transformers sets <laughs> yeah. uh, <in> production rooms. <laughs> so I'm always going to take that shot. You know what? I think he's always had a love for the character, and I think Harrison Ford has as well. You know, and I think maybe all that talk about recasting you know a couple of years ago, whether it was Pratt, whether it was all the other people, maybe that's when Harrison Ford you know got up off the rocking chair in Idaho and said, I'm coming back to my fedora. You know, maybe that's all that it took is he didn't want someone else to take the whip, especially after the fiasco with the mm-hmm. buff. And I, he's come back over and over and over. Spielberg being involved doesn't surprise me. I think he realizes the twilight of his career is literally staring him in the face. And I think that's why we get things like the Fablemans. And I think we're going to get nothing but kind of a wrap-up from Spielberg for the rest of his career. And I could see that's why he would pass on this, as not looking to the past, that he just wants to do something more personal.
3: Yeah, and I don't think Spielberg is someone who is going to be, like, a Ridley Scott or a Woody Allen, where they're just going to make movies until they die. I think he has a point where he's ready to just put down the camera and enjoy his elder years, just almost like a civilian. I could picture him being a, a speaker at, like, USC doing public events like that. I, I don't think his heart would have been in this at all. And it shows in some of the the blockbusters he did since Crystal Skull. I also think that, you know, much
1: like Lucas, who is kind of going to spend his time supporting the arts, you know, he's building the museum, for some reason down in L.A., even though freaking Bay Area is right up here, and everything he did with, like, the Oscar Museum, things like that, I think Spielberg is going to go that route. I think it's going to be film philanthropy for the most part. And you know what? I'm down with that. Because I don't know of many more people that I would care to see going to that realm than the beard.
2: All right, let's talk about our theatrical experiences, as we do. I went yesterday. As of today, it's Wednesday. I went Tuesday, my first day off. Me and my lovely fiancé went with my friend from work, the the trifecta met up at this place first time uh, jen's actually met him she met him in passing when we went to my work one day but this was the first time we actually got to hang out with him and we got to go and you know what i was surprised guys older crowd i didn't see too many people no no real teenagers like everybody around us was my parents age and under barely down to where you know maybe my our age. it was fourth of july so it was a, probably about three quarters full and people were into it especially one line, which we'll get to. Adam, what about you? How was your theatrical experience, sir?
1: So I went Sunday morning before work. I worked very, very late swing, so got up about 9 a.m., got dressed quick, went to the movie theater before I had to go back to work. Just because I wanted to see – if I had to wait till till Monday or Tuesday, I was worried the crowd would be lesser. And I wanted to at least see it with a decent-sized crowd, which is what I would hope to see on the weekend. Spoiler, not really. Size <laughs> wise. But I wanted to to get that kind of crowd theatrical type experience, so I forgo, forwent, foregone the IMAX or Dolby um, premium ticket because, as I've mentioned time and time again, much like Joe Pesci in the drive-through, I get screwed every time I buy those tickets. So <laughs> I went to the biggest non-premium type screen, still a you know, big ass screen, very nice, but standard seats, and. I think it was 11.30 was the start time of the film, so noon by the Mm -hmm. time previews and Nicole Kidman stopped talking. (laughs) You know, it was 12. And she sat on my lap. And it was maybe 50 people in about a 300-seat theater, so it was not massive, but agreed. It was definitely skewed older. But I thought about that as I was looking around going, man, look at these old people in here, realizing (laughs) they're my age now. (laughs) But if a teenager was to see this movie, that means they would have been five, six, seven, or actually, no, they wouldn't have been that old. They would have been two or three when Crystal Skull came out. It's been 15 years.
3: If they were 15
1: when Skull came out, they'd be in their 30s today. So I think that's something that's affected this because you don't have in every other year Indiana Jones something like we do Star Wars and Marvel and things of that sort. So I think that is playing into the older
3: crowd.
2: That's a great point, actually. Matt, what about you? How was your theatrical answer? I picture Adam
3: screaming at that laptop like Jim Cornette at that (laughs) drive-thru in Dairy Queen. (laughs) I also picture Garrett walking in, seeing that audience and yelling, You all belong in a museum! (laughs) I went on a Friday night, which is like the Mm -hmm. prime showtime. 7 o'clock, biggest theater in the multiplex. It was substantially filled, but I get the sense that the kids who were there only went because the parents Mm -hmm. dragged them to. I don't know how many would have gone by their own fruition, and I went by myself, because I'm one of those people that Adam talks about being 15 when Crystal Skull came out, and now I'm pushing 30, so I fit his timeline completely. And, of course, my kids are not old enough to watch this yet. I I don't know if anybody's old enough to watch this, uh, to be (laughs) perfectly honest. But I'm glad that everyone who was there, was at least paying attention to the movie. I didn't see any phones. I didn't see people getting up and, you know, making a big fuss. People were just watching the
2: movie. Same. Yeah, same here.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is something nice to be said about
1: that old. Uh-huh. <laughs> I did not have fucking yeah. no Apple Watch in my peripheral vision for
2: two hours. You and those Apple watches. All right, let's let's get on with the plot here. Unless anybody has anything else to add in the as a, in the preamble, we have been built up to this, boys. This is the fifth movie. This is a movie that, my God, as a relatively new podcast for over a year old at this point. This was huge for me. You know, this is a huge part of why I started this podcast was for moments like this, big franchises like this. So I got to say, going into this plot, if, if I wasn't excited for the movie, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it with you guys. Let's put it that way. I mm-hmm.
1: huh? agree. I mean, this is the type of series, you know, we knew there were going to be ups and downs, but really was looking forward to having some of these discussions. All
2: right. So very first company logo. I have something to say. <laughs> was not. Expected. I wasn't expecting it either, honestly. And as soon as that Disney 100 showed up on the screen, I looked at Jen and I was like, oh, God. I, I don't know why. When I'm watching this Indiana Jones movie, I know we're not going to get the Paramount logo. I understand that. But could we at least just have just had the Lucasfilm logo? That's it? Well, we did have the Paramount logo. It just wasn't first like it yeah, should have been. Yeah, we eventually get it. But
0: it's uh,
3: this, this drove me nuts already. This already, it was basically reaffirming mm-hmm. my fear. Yeah, That this was a product designed for commercial success, not artistic integrity. Mm-hmm.
1: It, I noticed it, but I I wasn't offended, but it did kind of make my head turn sideways a little bit and go, well, shit, that's not the opening mm-hmm. I'm used to. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. They haven't done this with the other films that they took, for, with the other properties they took that's from other studios. That's why it shocked
2: me when I saw it.
1: You know, Star Wars does not start no. with the Cinderella castle in a galaxy far, mm-hmm. far away. So, and the same thing with, you know, things like Prey, some of the other stuff. Like, they haven't done this ever before. So, to do it now is an interesting choice.
2: We start off with some clocks in the background and the Lucasfilm logo before we cut to some credits that are very reminiscent of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Mangold has said that was very intentional. We're seeing someone get tossed in a car with a hood on. And with the light shining, it's pulled off, and we're getting the reveal of 40 years ago Harrison Ford with current Harrison Ford voice. Look, we're going to be talking about this technology a lot in the oncoming years with Marvel and, of course, Star Wars in the next few months and everything in between. And I'll say this. The physical technology is great. They've got it almost seamless. There were a few lines here and there, but when they keep Indy in the shadows, he looks just like when we watched Raiders a month ago. But it's when he talks and we get the 80-year-old Ford voice when I'm completely taking out of it. I like the idea Mangles going for here. Seeing Indy in one more adventure while in his prime, that's great. But really, I was very distracted.
1: This technology has come such a long way. I am amazed at how fantastic it looks. Like when that comes up and that it looks consistently like this is a long opening sequence. Harrison Ford looks like early to mid 80s Harrison Ford here. And that technology, I was blown away because this was the part that I was looking forward to least. I've resented it in so many other films. Some of them I haven't as much as you all have. And we're going to talk about those pretty soon. But I was astonished how good I thought this looked on Harrison Ford. There's another character in here that they tried to de-age and utterly failed, maybe because there's not 50 years of of film on Maz (laughs) Mickelson to do so. But Harrison Ford looking de looks amazing, and he sounds like he does today. (laughs) And I agree, that's where the disconnect is. But I appreciate that they did not decide to do the fake Mark Hamill voice, which they've done with Mando, and fake James Earl Jones voice. Because I think, as somebody who appreciates and loves the voice acting, that slippery slope bothers me as much as it does AI, so I'm glad they did not go down that route.
3: So, I think this technology here looks as good as it's ever going to look, and I think it was wise for Mingle to shoot this predominantly at night, because there's less chances of you being able to catch it, because the parts where they shine the flashlight on them are really the only moments where you can see sort of the shine of that technology, but because, like, Whenever he's running or doing the physical stuff, he's on top of the train or there, there's no, like, light shining directly on him after he gets free. There's none of that uncanny valley stuff or it's very minimal. The voice is indeed the big problem. I mean, you, I would rather someone dub him like get an impersonator than that that technology of... Basically one step away from artificial intelligence that they've used on the Obi-Wan show, as Adam mentioned. I resisted this from the trailer because I am so done with this because I'm just, it's been overused. I mean, forget about Disney. They did it in a couple of the Terminator movies. So it's not just exclusive to stuff that Disney's doing, but I was surprised. It did not bother me as much as I thought it would.
2: So we're hearing that the Fuhrer's in hiding as a box is open and we're seeing the Lance of Longinus. Is that how you pronounce that? Longinus?
1: I can't remember. I've always called it the Spear of Destiny. <laughs> that, that's what it is in Hellboy. That's what it is in Constantine. That's what it is in so
2: many other things. I will go with the Lance of Longinus. Some pretty good set work here as we're getting Indian more Nazi action. And the action does start with a bang. Or does it as Indy fights his way out by hanging and then falling down as there are massive explosions? But I'm going to go ahead and say something right now that is the biggest crime I can say about any Indiana Jones film. I think the action of this movie sucks. There is zero propulsion in anything Indy does. Most of the scenes are filmed in a very dark tent. I get nothing out of any of the action being done in this movie, and that is a fucking shame.
3: It's unremarkable. That's the word. There were two words that kept coming into my brain as I was watching this movie. There was that one, and there was me screaming internally, cut. Because these action scenes go on for far longer than they attempt to justify. Uh, you know, it's one thing if this was, you know, ten minutes. This opening's got to be the longest one. It's got to be up there with... 25
2: Scott. minutes, this fucking opening except is. It's up there with Spectre.
3: up <laughs> yeah, there with Spectre, you know, it's up there with The World is Not Enough. But yeah, I think the, the action in this movie is is very disappointing. That there's nothing in here that I would classify as great. And to be honest, there's no excuse when you look at what the previous films have done, when you look at modern-day franchises. the con- And I'm not talking about Marvel or the, the big-budget computer effects written ones. I'm talking about stuff like John Wick and Mission Impossible, where it's predominantly practical and really impressive stunt work. Here, there's none of that. There's not a lot of imagination in these action scenes whatsoever. And to be honest, this opening felt like it was written by one of those AI machines because it's it feels systematically designed to please the purists. He's fighting Nazis. They do the stuff where, you know, it's a little bit of ingenuity. He's got the charm, but he also gets out of stuff based on dumb luck. Uh, I thought the opening was, it's good, but it wasn't, doing anything to make me feel like this movie was warranted. It felt like it was it was trying too hard to please people in the way that Force Awakens, as we'll talk about, played it too safe.
1: I adore this opening to this movie. Wow. Fr- from the way that it's shot, I'm actually very very happy to see a night shoot that's not blue gray like i could see everything that's going on but still tell that it's at night and so many movies even 300 million dollar ones fail at that aspect i've only seen one movie that this cinematographer papa michael had shot and that was ford versus ferrari so i didn't think he would be up for this but i think he is i like the action i like that while we're fighting nazis it's not wall after wall after wall of giant red and black swastikas. I like that it's a little more realistic than what we got from them in last crusade. I like the train. And then when we get, you know, his partner here, I think it's, it feels, this feels like a cereal. I will agree with Matt that this feels like it was written to please purists, fans, whatever you want to do, that it's, you know, a by the numbers thing. But I think this works huge. I was enjoying this entire opening sequence, and I think this feels like a serial more than almost any part of the
2: franchise. Wow, if they wrote it to please fans, I'm a fan, and I wasn't too pleased by this. And you're saying the action in this opening scene, but what about overall in the movie, Adam? Overall in the movie, do you think the action's up to par?
1: I think it's above okay. par. I think it's better. To th- I think it will go as we go through along. Um, I don't think all of it is top tier, but I think it's better than half the movies in the series.
2: All right. So as Matt mentioned, we're meeting Basil Shaw, a professor at Oxford and an archaeologist played by Toby Jones. Somehow a character Indy has known for all these years, yet we are just now meeting him. <laughs>
1: Well, he was Zola. He was trapped in Nazi yeah, Germany, Captain. Yeah, I get
2: it. We're also meeting our main villain of the movie, Dr. Voller, played by Mads Mikkelsen. I got to say, I had a lot of hope for this character, as maybe he could bring the same kind of real-world menace and cunning wits of the best villains of this franchise. As this character is, I have to say that even Spalco is head and shoulders above this guy. I get nothing from him as far as menace goes. I think
3: one of the the signs that this movie felt... Disnified is the cast list. These are all people who have either been in MCU, Toby Jones, Mads Mickelson, mm-hmm. right down to Thomas Kretschmann playing yeah. the main Nazi. It feels like they got these people because they had their phone numbers, not because they're right for these parts. Mads Mickelson casting him as a villain at this point was the equivalent of when they cast Claude Reigns to play Nazis, because that's what he did for a lot. He is a great actor, and he's played great villains before. He phoned this yeah. in. There's nothing in his performance that conveys menace. He never feels like he's that much of a threat or an obstacle. I'm not going to put it all on his shoulders, but he also doesn't. He doesn't bring those those things like Lashif with the, you know, the, those mannerisms he has and the way he always touches his eye. There's none of those little ticks in this performance. This is basically what he did in Doctor Strange. I've never been so excited to see an actor, and then been so disappointed with what he does and with what he's given. The only interesting thing about this character is when you find out what his like end game is. Not to use a mar- uh, a Marvel pun, <laughs> and the de aging on him. To Adam's point, I thought it was unnecessary. Yeah, same here. He doesn't look that much older. Granted, you know he's in his mid fifties, whereas Harrison Ford is considerably older now. Yeah. But but I didn't I didn't think it was it, it was all that. It, it was all that necessary. I uh, like Toby Jones. I kind of wish he was in the movie more, because um, he feels more like a Sala mm-hmm. type sidekick for this franchise. And, and I'll I'll leave it at that because I have words coming out.
1: <laughs> I agree with Matt that I think it's a shame that he's under underutilized, underwritten. I think that with four you know four screenwriters, I think the characterization got lost along the way. Because there's something to be said about. A German scientist after World War II, helping the U.S. you know with their missile program and stuff like all that is real world things. Shoot, Einstein came from Germany and helped Oppenheimer to talk about the summer's next big big movie. So there is like there's things to be had there, and it's it's glossed over and that's a shame. Yeah, I mean we got another Bond villain to be a indie villain, you know. So there's the connection that as well. Uh, I was looking forward to him a lot. Was very underwhelmed, but I. Don't think he's the biggest disappointment in villain casting that we get. But, yeah, it was, it was kind of ho-hum and wrote for a villain, and that part's disappointing.
2: So he tells the Nazis that the Lance is fake, but he's got his hands on half the Antikythera dial. As we're seeing the whip being in the hands of the Nazis, so Mangle's going to cut to the table and we get a little bit of the Indy theme as the whip's being shown. And Indy fights his way out of the Nazi motorcade. He jumps out of a car and fights and punches a Nazi on a bike before causing a Nazi to get the Wilhelm Wilhelm scream before dying. I thought that was a nice little touch.
3: They got it out early. One thing yeah. I do like about this movie, much like Raiders, they don't hide the fact that both Nazis and innocent people yeah, die. Yeah, that's
2: true. <laughs> yep.
3: Like this, this yeah. really does not feel sanitized as far as them killing people off. It's not like, it's not like modern Star Wars where people just get shot with a blaster and they cut really quick. Like some of these people are both nonchalantly shot and the camera lingers. And some of them, you clearly see them getting run over or torn up. I, it was nice to see that.
1: Yeah, uh, Crystal Skull totally G.I. joe yeah, everything. Did. Like, Andy doesn't kill a single person. That's the only film where Indy doesn't kill. And in this one, it doesn't take long before Indy's back to his killing ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's a great point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, he didn't kill in Crystal Skull, did he? Not a one. Andy gets on the train dressed as a Nazi and grabs the blade. As Voller, he sits down and unveils the MacGuffin of the film, this dial that was supposedly created by Archimedes. Hey, Mangle, here's an idea. If you want to mirror that first Raiders film so bad, which you obviously do, why not have this whole adventure be something that Indy never sees again? And we know that Voller is someone to be reckoned with, because he, like Belloc, is always one step ahead. Because this whole first 25 minutes is part of the one story this movie is telling, and that threw me off like this train gets thrown off later on. Why can't we see him get something and Indy just come up short?
3: That also detracts from the serialized nature of this Mm -hmm. opening. Uh, if it wasn't tied to the rest of the plot, I could see more of Adam's point. Um, but because it's consequential, except for the fact that people can survive getting hit by a pipe while on a speeding train at full speed <laughs> and, you know, show up <laughs> totally okay. I, I can't, I can't tell you how much that's crazy. Like, but I watched him hit that, get hit by that pipe. I'm like, they gotta do some real, real solid explanation to explain how he's okay based on the trailer. And nope. Like a lot of things in this movie, there's no explanation.
2: I thought maybe he'd come back as his brother or something. That, that That's the only thing I could have thought, but no. Or they were going to introduce thought... the obvious time travel That's true. Early. Yeah, good point.
1: I thought they were going to give him a wound on the eye as a nod to, to oh, Casino God. Royale.
3: Oh, God. I would, I would have fucking
2: that
1: <laughs> Because he's hit on the same side of the face, and that's what I thought was going
2: to happen. So we're still seeing Indy make his way through this train as he finds his hat, as well as Basil, before the Nazis find him. He punches out Voller using his hat and then grabs a dial before making his way on top of the train. He's about to face off with a guy on top of the train before they have to duck. More fighting ensues, and I guess Indy doesn't have his gun yet because he never shoots it once in this movie. In fact, it's Basil who helps Indy by shooting the Nazi thug himself. Why doesn't he have his gun?
3: Um,
1: Because it was was
2: confiscated. It was confiscated. confiscated? Okay. Well, well, why wasn't it with the rest of his stuff? I guess they threw it out. I don't know.
3: Well, it was just he. He just had the whip in the hat.
2: It's not like he's known for really carrying a gun. That gun is a fucking trademark of his. (laughs) Of losing it. (laughs)
0: That's
2: true. Remember, she broke a nail trying. Okay, never mind. We went. We went through that
0: movie.
2: Uh, (laughs) He's then confronted by Voller, who get who nearly gets his head taken off by this pipe. Matt mentioned before, they jump off the train and into the water below, but Indy still has a dial in his possession. So there it is, boys. That is a 25-minute preamble to the adventure.
1: As he and Toby Jones are walking up that little hill out of the water and he shows it, I sat back and went, wow, they gave us a serialized opening to kick off what was an homage to serials. That's how I felt at the end of this scene. To Matt's point, yes, that you know, contradicts the fact that this plays a part in the movie, but at the end of this 20, 25 minutes, I felt like they finally gave us that serialized opening. And I appreciated the heck out of it. I thought it was shot well. I loved the action. I thought this was a great way to start the movie. I think this was the best start to a movie since Temple of Doom.
3: Somewhere in the middle for me. Like, I don't think this is as good as Raiders. But, you know, if I had to compare openings, I think it's on par with Crystal Skull until he gets in that town. Mm-hmm. But, but, yeah, like like I said, it's just it's nothing spectacular.
2: Yeah, I'm more well with Matt on this. We cut to 1969 New York. As we're seeing modern Indy wake up to his neighbors partying, he marches over there, very get-off-my-lawn-like, only to hear, turn on the news. Get off
1: my lawn. <laughs> <That's>...
2: <laughs> Although the dude gets up, he's shirtless. He looks pretty good for 80, man. i, I got to give it to Ford here. He does. Yeah, he, and, uh, he already worked himself out for this, and it shows. Uh, good for him. Indy yep. makes himself some not-so-instant coffee and whiskey as he... I thought of you, Matt, as soon as I saw this, because you mentioned this last week. As he glances at some divorce papers. <laughs> All
3: right, can, can I, can I so. say something? <laughs> if you recall on previous shows, I've talked about how much I hate Sky Portals. Yes. There, is a, there is a trend in modern movies that I hate more than Sky Portals. Yes, that exists. this pertains to legacy sequels. Why is it that every legacy sequel, when we are reintroduced to the returning character, their lives are as fucking miserable as possible? Star Wars, you get it Mm -hmm. with Han and Luke. Laurie Strode in the new Halloween movies. Jean-Luc Picard. Sidney Prescott in the new Screen movies. Sarah Connor. Do Hollywood writers, can they only think of the negative? Why is it that, like... Even Rocky, Mm -hmm. we see him, Adrian has died. But even then, he's not like this decrepit asshole. You know, he's still Rocky. I just hate this trend where why can't we be reintroduced to characters and things have actually worked out for them. I think Harrison Ford is really good in this movie. There's a couple moments where I think he kills it. You know, he adds some emotional weight to a character that's never really had it in that context. But he doesn't always feel like Indiana Jones. And And I think that's largely because of where he's at in life. It's not the fact that he's 80 years old. It's the fact that we thought when he married Marion at the end of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, things were actually going to work out. And this feels like kind of a a slap in the, no pun intended, a slap in the face to how that movie ended. I was not a fan of this decision at all, of, of putting him where he's at. And, and again, he feels too much like Logan when he's Wolverine at the beginning of that movie where he has nothing to live for. Well, I shouldn't say that. He's an alcoholic. You know, he's he's beaten down by life. He's old. Uh, I I was getting... this. It was starting to worry me about what I was concerned about going into this theater.
1: As the obvious Karen Allen fan of the group, um, I'll say, to Variety Magazine, you can go suck a... No, that's not true people like that. You can jump off a frickin' cliff. Because on Thursday, front page variety on the internet was how Karen Allen feels about her return to Indiana Jones. She wasn't in the trailers. She wasn't on the... Like, was supposed to be a surprise. So, for one of the biggest L.A. rags and shit rag, to spoil her return pissed me off to no end ahead of time. So, when this happened, I was a little relieved that this is what they meant by her return. I thought this was going to be it. I understand Matt's criticisms about, you know, the way that you put your hero, especially when you're coming back to these legacy sequels so long later that, you know, you're putting them at the absolute bottom. Yeah. You might as well have made him a full blown alcoholic and it would have been the beginning of Logan. I can agree with that. But I think based on what happens to the character in between films, I think it's a way to show where he is. And, I didn't have a big issue with it. I was kind of, I was emotionally taken by it and I was really interested as to how it was going to play out because to me, it showed that Indy had gone through some stuff. There was going to be a reason that was going to be out later. And and I felt for the character in this moment. I really did.
2: Yeah. Fortunately for me, I didn't have Adam's fate because Karen Allen, even in the years leading up to this film, yes, years, people would ask her, Look, we know their new Indiana Jones is being filmed. Are you a part of it? She said, That would be nice. She kept it very, very coy. And so I had no idea that this was coming. I didn't see that article, thank God. Like I told you guys, I stayed off for the most part. You know, I go check up on, you know, my friends and whatnot, but I would not even check any reviews, nothing. So I had no idea that she was coming up. So when I saw this, I was like, Okay, this is how they're going to explain it away. I had no idea what was going to happen at the end. I was just like, okay, we're going, to, we're going to do this. And Ford, like Matt said, has a scene where he really explains it later. But here I, I, I'm, I'm with Adam where I think you need to have a character struggle here. I think if you're going to bring back this character, you're not going to see – don't, people don't want to see him, them be happy in the beginning. They want to see them overcome struggles. This is a struggle for him. And Matt, you called this out. You knew he was going to be divorced at the beginning of this. Like, we, we, we kind of joked about it last week, but this is how this character is coming back, and I didn't have any real issues with it either. I didn't really think about Logan here. I haven't watched that movie since we reviewed it for that podcast, so maybe if I would have watched it recently, that I would have, but it didn't really bother me that much.
0: Even if saw this just-
2: picture on the refrigerator covering up with a magnet, I thought that was perfect. We, we get all we need to see and he, feel for him in this moment.
3: I think they, I think they just keep compounding it, though. It's not enough that he's divorced and we find out what happens with his son. He's losing his job. He's being put out to pasture, basically. Eventually, he gets wanted for murder. It's like, I wish there was just one, one reason, not we have to give him just a whirlwind of shit. Because I'm trying to think. The, there, there's only one instance where I have liked them revisiting a legacy character, and them not being what you think they should be. And we'll talk about that very soon.
2: We then cut to Indy as a professor at Hunter College. Not that prestigious, as students don't really seem to give a shit that he's (laughs) given this lesson. (laughs) They're all falling falling (laughs) (laughs) asleep. No chicks with I love you on their eyelashes here, are (laughs) there? On their eyelids. This is where we are introduced to Helen Shaw. Helena Shaw, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, as we're being treated to some historical context of what we're going to be seeing later and footage of the astronauts landing is wheeled into the classroom. All right, let's attack this right now. Helena Shaw has been taking a beating on my feet as people have pretty much rebelled against this character. And I want to go ahead and say I don't mind her. There is a character later who I legitimately hate more than any character in recent memory. She's brass, she's cunning, and she's a challenging foil for Indy. We'll learn that she's the she's his goddaughter, so right away we realize that there's not going to be any creepy funny business between her and Ford, and as a foil for Indy and the catalyst of most of this film's quote-unquote action, I like her.
3: I can't I fucking can't believe what I'm hearing.
2: Uh, what what a self-serving,
3: selfish, condescending know-it-all cunt. <laughs> I, I am. I am not. I am not. I am not going to mince words about this character at all because this. This is the the Kathleen Kennedy yeah, model of, of strong female mm. character, where it's everything I was afraid of. She is white at every single instance. Indiana Jones takes a backseat through the entirety of this movie. The problem that I have is not that she keeps, like, betraying him or kind of stringing him along. It's the fact that we're supposed to feel empathy for this character when she talks about the reason why she resents him so much. Because it comes out of fucking nowhere, and it's only there because predominantly there's a character that's introduced because everybody has to be fucking related to somebody. I I think this is... She makes Willie look like (laughs) him. Uh, I I have not hated a movie character And I am not the person on record, who has ever really gone against strong female characters or lay up attempts at, you know, chauvinism. But I think every bit of vitriol
2: that has been spewed at this character is completely justified. Wow, two ends. Adam, break the tie.
1: So when the trailer came out, you know, saw she was introduced, I thought the entire time, and I was convinced that she was not going to be goddaughter, I thought Disney did the thing, which they've done many times, where they ADR a fake line over a trailer, I thought she was going to be his granddaughter. That's how I thought things were going to be explained. When she showed up, when everything else happened, first thing I did was go home, look up who Phoebe. Wall- like, I've heard the name. Like, I know Phoebe Waller Bridge. Like, that's been a name that's been thrown in Hollywood for what, the last, like, five years. Like, big time to anything that needs to get rewritten, mm-hmm. ghostwritten, script doctor. They br- seem to bring her in for all of it. I'll say, as soon as I got home from, from the movie, I looked her up and added. Fleabag, which I had never seen, and any other things she's been in, because not only do I like the character, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge freaking just, like, steals my heart in this movie. I freaking adored her from the beginning to the end.
2: She's also a co-screenwriter <laughs> of No Time to Die, by the way. She's been around. Like, she co-wrote <laughs> No Time to Die.
1: I hold part of that against her, because that movie is is fairly wishy-washy, and you can tell which parts Oh yeah, did in that. But I, I do agree on that, that this is part of the insistence of, of changing things up, that's happened at Disney Lucasfilm you know, in the last little bit. However, shoot, she's there's another movie that we're gonna talk about in a couple weeks, and she's the second best part of that movie as well. But yeah, I from the time she shows up here, I think she's she feels that she keeps it going. She keeps it propelling. I think she helps carry the parts that Harrison Ford can't anymore. Like I do think she's as much of a MacGuffin as the dial is.
2: We're going to get more from her in a bit, but first Indy has to retire as he's given a clock and a not-too-luxurious send-off, which is an admittedly brilliant metaphor for what they're going to be putting forward through in this last ten as his character.
1: It's exactly what Lucasfilm did to him over at tour. Yeah,
2: right. <laughs> Indy says, thanks for putting up with me as he gives the clock to a homeless guy before he's joined in a bar by Helena. He tells Helena that going to the moon is like going to Reno. You're in the middle of nowhere with no blackjack. And let me tell you, that got quite the response in our theater.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: I, I do like how this is a guy who has seen some crazy shit, and he's just like, landing on the moon, you pansies. <laughs> like, come back, do something really impressive? I felt like this
1: opening part of this New York sequence here, does the Rise of Skywalker to Last Jedi thing of takes an amazing amount of shots at the previous installment. I felt like this insulted everything to do with space and aliens in a way that was just kind of a backhanded slap at forget that last movie. That's how it felt every time, you know, he rolls his eyes at the the girl and the astronaut sitting on the subway and just he doesn't give a shit about space at all. And I... it just feels like a... Forget that last
2: film. Mm. We cut to the quote-unquote bad guys of the film, headed by Voller and this Hulk-looking thug, as well as the wooden Boyd Holbrook. <laughs> I hate these fucking villains so much. Did, did they just get Boyd Holbrook's I know! And them like
3: an automaton? Because if you've seen Logan and you've seen the Sandman, you know he's really good at playing villains. I, I hate... The villains of the movie yeah. fucking suck. They they are one of the biggest things that hurts it for me. If you were going to bring Indiana Jones back, and he's coming back against Nazis, which who you should already hate. And I think part of the reason they brought the Nazis back is because that word has become so common in our modern Mm. politics, (laughs) among other things. But they're boring. They only show up when the plot needs them to show up. Everything about Operation Paperclip Mm. and them being... It hurts with the fucking CIA is given lip service Mm. at best so I'm partially confused as to how all this is being orchestrated. It's it's bad storytelling, and th- they're, they're the bottom tier of Indiana Jones villains by far.
1: Why is Boyd Holbrook in this movie? Like, there's no reason for... Like, he doesn't do anything that Bowler can't or wouldn't do other than shoot a few more people. He's redundant. He doesn't give a good performance whatsoever. He looks like he's got a mouthful of something the entire time, which just annoys the living hell out of me because he looks like he's just got a wad of something in his mouth, no pun intended. It's not that he, you know, if he gave a bad performance, I might be entertained. He doesn't give a performance. He sleeps, walks more than Indy does at the beginning of this movie while he's mm-hmm. laying in that chair. It, and then this other big hulking guy is so over-exaggerated yeah.
2: that he's a distraction. Positively.
1: You get the big, you know, hulking guy that Indy's going to do some of those awesome punches with. You, you have those scenes. But this guy is such an exaggeration. He feels like an effect. Yeah. he feels like they pulled a bad CG version of the abomination out of freaking She-Hulk and throw him in here.
2: Like, that's just, he's awkward. Absolutely.
1: So, yeah, these two, it's redundant. They don't fit. And then they throw in this other character here in about two minutes who has no role or reason to be in this movie.
0: Well,
3: she's there to fulfill Kathleen Kennedy's diversity. Yeah, that's
2: like, it, if you're pulling people from Bond and whatnot, why not pull Batista here? I mean, he would have been perfect for this. Cause, cause Batista because has, you'd be uh, mad? Batista read the script and knew he have nothing <laughs> to
1: well, do. Disney's Batista's done with
2: Disney. He's never going back yeah, to the
3: mouse. Too, he he sort of cussed him out.
2: <laughs> We're finding out that Helena just graduated in archaeology because, of course, she did, and this. Then mm-hmm. giving some information on the Archimedes dial, and where have we heard this before? Her dad had diaries and journals and was obsessed with it.
3: It also went yeah, crazy. Yeah,
2: it went crazy. She says she knows they lost the dial in a river located in the Alps, and she was thinking they could go there and find it. And she could go look for fortune and glory. Wait, no. I mean, she could be famous. <laughs> Andy asks, why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? And she responds with, wouldn't you? She also gives
3: the attempted mission statement of the
2: movie, of Indiana Jones going on one Uh last adventure. Yep.
3: It feels like the movie's stopping to try to justify its Mm -hmm. own existence.
2: Voller's henchmen, they check up on a spy, who's this chick from the Black Panther, and she reveals where Jones and Helena are.
3: I wish this was set in the MCU so the Dora Dora (laughs) Malaj could show up. That, That would be, like, the... Surprisingly plausible for, them, for, this, uh, for this for this universe, <laughs> but, but yeah, the everything with the CIA, like it, it, it's never explained how, what their relationship no. is is like their prospective buyer. It's just only because you've read the plot synopsis that said that the Nazis were recruited by the U.S. for Operation Paperclip.
2: Unless you know uh-huh. that the movie really doesn't explain no. it, they expect you to know it. And the this movie is
3: two and a half fucking hours. Uh-huh. And the The story is as bare bones as a fucking Thanksgiving turkey after your relatives come over.
1: (laughs) The amazing thing is the last film made a point of Indy being in the OSS. Mm -hmm. Do you know what the OSS was? It was the precursor to the CIA. You could have a great tangential connection is to the CIA, OSS, Indiana Jones. Like you could build that connection with about three lines, three sentences, and they don't. You know, it's just, and yeah, you need to understand, as Matt said, paperclip and you, you need to understand that history. I did, doesn't bother me. I thought it was cool, but yeah, agreed. You could, can you imagine some 24 year old sitting in the movie theater having no idea what the hell that's about? Now, this woman here has come out and talked about how she didn't like how the character was written and portrayed. So she demanded rewrites and she got it. If this is what she rewrote for herself, she should be offended by what she decided to get rewritten. Because <laughs> this character has nothing to do, comes in and out, and plays no role in the rest of this film whatsoever, other than to stand out with an afro that feels as offensive as anything that Quentin Tarantino would write for a black person to say.
3: Yeah, Pam Greer would look at that outfit and go, I mean, come on, I, I was a black quotation, and that's a bit, I would be caught dead wearing that.
2: That is the equivalent of, like, a baseball player saying, I demand a trade, and end ended up on the Royals. You are one to be rewritten, mess. and this is what you end up with?
3: I, I keep expecting John Hammond to come out of nowhere and go, I spared <laughs> no expense. <laughs> so, e-
1: everything here in New York feels disjointed and disconnected, including the way mm-hmm. it's shot. I don't have this issue with the rest of the movie, but the focus shifts from character to character, and the focus puller moves your eyes around the screen in a way that looks like crap. Mm -hmm. Everything here in New York is shot and focused really, really poorly.
3: The big issue is that the the movie is coy with how it goes in and out about Crystal Skull's existence, because the last movie established that he was wanted for being a communist suspect at one point. And that's never brought up again. Like, what what has he done in the 15 years since Crystal Skull? Like, did he still go on adventures? Did he just quit after his son died? Spoilers. You know, because we find out he was killed in Vietnam. Vietnam's going on at this time, so there's not that huge of a leap. And they poke fun at Crystal Skull. But it does, to Adam's point, the whole retconning that
2: previous movies didn't exist. Well, if you're going to tell a serial... You're going to tell him about this one adventure. So I get what they're going with there, but you're absolutely right. If we're following this character, and this is a character piece, and we're wrapping this character up, we need to know what he's been doing ever
0: since.
3: Yeah, and this was the problem with this series becoming more focused on family and Indiana Jones as a character with Last Crusade on. This is the problem you run into.
2: Mm -hmm. We're seeing them go and find some more of Basil's notes. And they study the dial, which supposedly can create fissures in time. And that Basil gave Indy the dial for him to destroy, which Indy never did. So this is—I'm trying to think here. If he's trying to make this like Raiders, would this be the pointy scene that we're going through here?
3: It'd be as close because there's no like debriefing. Yeah,
2: it's the problem with trying to replicate a
3: formula, but they don't have all the pieces because there's no there's no Brody stand-in. He's not really working with the government. He's just sucked up on this adventure because this bitch of a goddaughter sells him out and only cares about money.
2: Yeah. Indy confronts, quote-unquote, Wombat about how much she knows before she takes the dial and leaves. Indy escapes on the shelves and a chase ensues, and they go running on top of the roofs as Indy tries calling the police and is once again captured.
3: So, as far as Harrison Ford's physicality,
2: there are never any moments where I feel
3: like they're trying to hide his age which mm-hmm. I appreciate. He runs like an old man. Uh, but but there's two problems. One, Helena can do all of her action scenes perfectly because she's a strong female character. And number two, Indiana Jones, because he's 80, his punches would not have the same yeah. effect as they did 40-plus years ago when they used those sound effects. So that's kind of the only part of his performance in the action scenes that loses me is when he either punches people or he has to... Like, he catches up to people throughout this movie where he, even at his peak, as an 80-year-old man, he, you know, he's in good shape for what he is, still straining the realms of credibility.
1: See, it's tough because we want the Indiana Jones of the 80s and even the 90s, and I think if they're going to give us, you know, what's purported to be what... Probably supposed to be a late 60s age, even though Harrison Ford is 80. You can't have it both ways. I mean, I can't want, I can't see a movie where my hero is an elder and think that he's gonna punch, you know, with the same gravitas that he did in Raiders. But yeah, I do think that's why you bring somebody else in. Clearly that's why Helena is here as well. But I'm always gonna love the sound effect of hearing those punches. Same here.
2: I got to say, I'm with Adam. I was just about ready to say that is, Yeah, he wouldn't have the same effect, but he, I love those effects. Like, I love those sound effects. I'm just a sucker for that. It's
1: exaggerated. It's, it's the same way when, when a single gunshot goes off, and it's the ridiculous boom cannon of mm-hmm. a freaking, mm-hmm. you know, the type of thing that gives Clint Eastwood a freaking hard-on. You know, mm-hmm. just that giant... It's, it works for me. It really does.
2: The Nazis interrogate Indy about why... Helena was meeting up with him as they take Indy out of the van after an accident and make their way through a ticker tape parade celebrating the Apollo 11 astronauts. Indy starts shouting, Hell no, we won't go, before escaping and hopping on a horse. Another chase ensues as he makes his way through a subway station. He tells someone to hold his horse as he jumps on a train and tells the person next to him the subway's faster.
3: I thought this was the best action scene in the movie. It doesn't go on for 20 fucking minutes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, outside of the one janky shot of his head on that horse as it kind of, as he reaffirms his position, this is where I think he, they they don't hide his age, but they come up with a scenario to where it makes sense that he's able to still be some kind of action hero because the horse does Mm -hmm. all the work. It's not like he's sprinting down the street or anything like that. I I think with the one-liners, you know, he's been a jokey character. But I think there, there's instances where where he feels too much. It's that, that group thing at, at Disney where everyone has to be a one-quip wonder.
2: I don't know. He's always had those lines, though. Think of it. it's not the years, it's the mileage. Sala, I said no camels. This is five camels. Can't you count? Like he's had that sense of humor this entire series. So I didn't really think about that too much. And in fact, Adam, you said it when we did Return of the Jedi. Like the lines he was delivering in that was more indie than Han Solo. So he's he's always had this this kind of niche about him where he he's always been delivering these lines. So I didn't really think about that.
1: He has. I think the Matt's point, though, like, I think he always says these smart-assy lines in anger that comes across as funny, and here he is making it as a quip. They, some of these lines feel like they were written for Chris Pratt, not written for Harrison Ford Indy, so I get it. But I, I'm laughing as it goes along. Like, it, it breaks the tension. It's a good scene. Um, I think finally it starts to get shot really well, because I couldn't stand the rest of the way New York gets shot. People, please remember, if you go down into a train transit platform there is third rail power that can electrocute you please don't do that for your own safety please stand away from the third rail (laughs) but you know seeing them on the horse seeing them do that it is a fun action scene it ends well it's i have a good time with it i have no idea how holbrook is riding that motorcycle down he gets stopped by the gates and then suddenly he found a way to hop over the gates but you know it's fast x
2: Oh, boy. Voller is told of what happened with Jones, and he hangs up the phone. Meanwhile, Indy is recognized as a killer on TV, before Salah shows up in his prototypical job of taxi driver and punches the guy out. We're getting a little catching up with Salah and his grandchildren, who watch too much TV, but they know their history. Adam, what do you think about this way of reintroducing Salah?
1: So is it offensive to have... The Middle Eastern cab driver here in New York? absolutely. freaking Is that exactly what the cab drivers were in New York? Absolutely. So sometimes the offensive stereotypes are accurate, as bad as that might be. But I'm glad to see John Rhys-Davies here. Uh, even with the reduced, diminished type role that he has, he's a lovely presence. I don't give a damn about Lord of the Rings, so John Rhys-Davies is not grimly to me. He's Sala and I smile when I see him back on screen, even knowing that it was coming. That's another character they could have kept out of the trailers and it would have been okay, but I'm happy to see him here.
2: You do know he played Kingpin, right? What? Ah, wait till we get to Incredible Hulk. Trial
3: of the Incredible Hulk, yep. Ah, shit.
2: Yep. (laughs) Matt, how did you feel uh, seeing Sala? Before
3: I get to Sala, you glanced over. Indy is wanted for murder. Yeah. For the next five minutes, and then as soon as they get to Tangier, that plot point never comes up again. Dies, yep. Drives me nuts. When Sala is introduced, it felt like such like the, the movie stops so that the the people can applaud when he walks on screen. Um, <laughs> which my which my theater did. Yeah, I way. know, I, yeah. I I heard it too. He's still as jovial and as welcome a presence, but the movie does not justify why he does not go with him well enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm.
3: It's just oh, I made my cameo, I can't come with you. See you later.
2: Well, Indy's the one who says you can't come. Salah says, I have my passport, I'm all set to go. Yeah, but he, should have, like, he
3: should have fought him harder on it.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. Indy says he needs to dial, otherwise he's going to be framed for murder. <laughs> Salah. T- <laughs> so it tells does us... It way- just I makes mean, seem a little The Fugitive-like. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, if Tommy Lee Jones showed up, chasing him oh, this would have been fitting.
2: <laughs> it
1: wasn't he. It was the one-armed Nazi.
3: Well, at least the time William Jones showed up, the movie would have gotten some personality and some. And like, there you go. Because um, <laughs> once the plot kicks off, this is where I, I, I started getting bored out of my skull as soon as Salah leaves and they go to Tangier. My crystal skull. If you bored out of his crystal skull.
2: <laughs> Jesus. Salah takes Indy to the airport and gives him his stuff. He also said, like I said earlier, that he brought his passport with him, but Indy says the days of them adventuring together have come and gone. He tells Indy to give them hell before taking off until the end of the movie. (laughs) Indy then gets on a plane and looks through a window that, of course, triggers the memory of his and Basil's, and I guess we can call it a breakup as he starts going crazy from his obsession with the dial. He tells Baz that the dial belongs in a museum and promises him he'll destroy it. He then tells Helena that he'll be all right. So this flashback, I mean, this is pretty easy storytelling, isn't it, Adam?
1: It's, it's easy. It's economical. For some reason, it's, they needed to tie it into Wombat, you know, but I'm going to say this. It shows Baz this works crazy a hell of a lot better than it did for John Hurt last week. So love it or hate it, i you know, this mythical device turning someone crazy worked out better here than what I saw last time.
3: This scene only exists to try to justify why Helena can't stand him. Mm-hmm. Feel, it's the only reason why this scene is here. It's not really that economical, uh, in my estimation, and it feels really disjointed, because uh, there's no other flashbacks like this.
1: It feels... You know what? You're agreed on that, because part of that is dropped about why she hates him, and it's not. it never fully comes together. It feels like in the last five years, there was five different versions of this movie that was written.
2: I'm sure there were. We cut back to modern day where Indy finds Helena auctioning off the dial in the black market. And this is where we meet Teddy. Oh, Teddy. I'm going to say right now, this is the most enraging, annoying character I have seen in a long time. We're going to talk about Jar Jar here pretty soon, and I have heard people, including two dudes on this podcast, say that character's the epitome of toxicity. It was close with Willie Scott with me, but I didn't think she was the T-word either. This character right down to the actor, is pathetic. I say pathetic because this is a half-assed attempt to recreate Short Round, right down to the backstory that Helena became friends with him right after she caught him trying to steal her purse. This actor is annoying on screen. I have no idea how old he's supposed to be, and I do understand that this is his first role. Here's hoping it's his last. I fucking hate this character as much as Matt hates Helena.
1: You know who this character is? He's, he's Jason Todd. To Batman. (laughs) Like, that's who he is to Elena. (laughs) Is it a poor-ass attempt to give a short round? Yep, absolutely. And this character's there. I don't care about him one way or the other. He doesn't offend me. He doesn't impress me. I don't think he's anywhere near as bad as Wilmina Scott in Temple of Doom. He's just here. I get annoyed at this introduction because fucking Chekhov's airplane uh, scenario here. You might as well give give him a video game a Flight Simulator 2023. (laughs) Um, So there's no doubt this is going to come into play, but I I don't know. I I forget him. It's clear that they're making him be short round without bringing him in short round. And if they did that, if they would have found a way to bring in Kukai Kwan here, everybody... Not everybody. Half the people would love it. Half the people would be pissed. And... I knew this was going to enrage some people, but I just don't care about the character, so I'm kind of apathetic to him.
2: Yeah, I was, I, that, that exact thought went through my mind, like, why the fuck isn't this character short round? You know, I said the exact same thing last week, if you recall, at Crystal Skull. Why not make that character short round? This guy had just won a fucking Oscar. Now, granted, he hadn't won it when they were filming this, but he was starting to get some buzz. Why not put him in here? He doesn't
3: leave enough of an impression on me for me to get that upset. He is one of the AI creations in this script. We find we have to hit all the beats. We need a young sidekick who's good with vehicles, even though the movie doesn't explain why. I, I, well, outside of that bullshit video game, I just don't think you like kids.
2: No, I love kids. I like <laughs> Short rounds. Yeah,
3: but we're gonna fight. It, you know. That's because you like the Goonies, dummy.
2: <laughs> no, I don't like the Goonies. I hate the Goonies, actually. Oh, okay.
3: Yeah, he doesn't um, like the Goonies. I, we're gonna talk about Jurassic
2: Park very. Just wait for Jurassic Park people. <laughs> yeah, wait for Jurassic Park But I, I just I, No, I like kids if they're done right In this movie It's just not done right I just I just don't like this character This character's written poorly Maybe this guy's a great dude I don't know he's, It's his first fucking acting job I think he's just here To fill a quota And I fucking can't stand him Because he's written like shit And every time he's on screen I just want to punch him
1: you know I heard. haven't
2: felt this way about a character in a long time. Like I have been very calm for the most part when we've been doing these movies for over a year. I, honestly, I have not felt this way in forever. But my God, every time he was on screen, every time he was doing something, he flies the plane later. I just want to fucking throw him against a wall.
1: You now know exactly how I felt last week about Mutt. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, and all
3: my hatred goes to Helena. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I
2: don't even feel this way about Jar Jar. That's the weird thing.
3: No, I don't either. We'll get... that, that's because I don't really care about Star Wars that much. <laughs> but, but but this feels like okay, we got to have a kid, because um, like yeah, and like fucking Ant Man three, they drag his daughter in and she's annoying as I just don't think Disney knows how to write kids anymore. Mm-mm. Well,
2: I haven't seen that one yet.
1: Well, and it's also it's it's the Spielberg model though of you have you got to bring in this like orphan kid into it. So it's not just Disney. This is Spielberg. You know, it's kind of to a T, but it's, it's been done and done and done.
2: Yeah, wait, wait till we get to the Lost World. Uh, oh, holy fuck. Oh, my God. <laughs> All the Jurassic Park movies have kids. Indy tries taking the box and runs into Waller, or as he's known now, and Matt loves Schmidt. Le Chiffre? <laughs> he's come to take the dial as well. And then another fight breaks out as Indy has a ton of guns pulled on him, and he ends up chasing the dial, which has ended up in Teddy's hands, before Voller takes it and then leaves, saying, See you in the past. We're hearing the sounds of the Falcon. You guys catch that? Yep, we do later yeah, as I well. Yeah. As Helena's gangster fiancé somehow starts chasing them, and Indy and Helena get in an auto rickshaw. This character comes and goes. This was weird entry, wasn't it?
3: And again, this makes Helena, like, there's nothing you're supposed to like about Helena here, cause she's, she, she's established as a, as a gold digger, and she escalates the situation in the auction room rather than helping the Jones. I don't understand, what is there to like about this character? I genuinely don't get it. The, the dark, if it wasn't for the fact that we had Schneider, I wish they made her a full Nazi so somebody could justifiably punch her in the
2: face. I don't mind her as a foil for Indy. That's the only thing I say is I, I think she plays off Indy okay. Now, we talked about this with Wayne Winstone last week. They have to have this character who is or isn't a, a, someone who stabs them in the back. In Raiders, it was for Melina who stabbed him in the back. Like, we have to have these characters, but this character go, is just as wishy-washy as Wayne Winstone last week. I didn't have any problems with it.
1: The no. issue I do have a little bit, to, to Matt's point, is it happens over and over and over and over. Like It goes back and forth just two or seven too many times. However, I will say, and I can admit this, I'm a little more forgiving because I find her hot as hell, and the accent works for me.
2: So, Indy and Helena, they go through the streets of Tangier in this auto rickshaw, getting chased by Voller's men. Helena and Teddy, they get in a separate car as Indy gets in pursuit, and this chase, complete with terrible inexcusable, given the budget blue screen, is just boring.
3: Yeah, this... I I could have taken a nap and not missed anything as far as story progression. It
1: goes on double the length that it needs to, but I'm a lot more into this one than I was a month ago when I had to watch almost the same thing in Fast X. Like, that's (laughs) what it reminded me. I am tired of watching these chases down streets in foreign European countries.
2: Oh, wait till we get to Bourne.
1: Oh, God, yeah, Bourne, yeah, Bourne. Um (laughs) But this is—it goes on too long. But we've mentioned this before. For some reason, being that there's no competition out there, they don't feel the need to edit a movie down.
3: There's also again no uh, no bystanders that are getting run over, or Mm. this is where you know people return to their homes. Yeah, and again, all Helena does in this scene is just call them old and chastise them. But she can. But we see how perfect she is as a driver; like she doesn't crash once, which. You know, this is a woman driver, so this is absolute bullshit. Um
2: You know what, and I gotta say too, we haven't brought it up yet, but I want to bring it up right now. This is the longest Indiana Jones film of the series. It fucking feels like it. I didn't feel the length of any of the previous three. Even Crystal Skull. I was not checking my watch. I was not seeing how long it is until it ends. This one, I kind of was. Yeah, th- this
3: one really has no reason to be two and a half hours. To me, there's only one
1: spot where I felt the length. Other than that, it felt to me about 40 minutes shorter than I thought it
3: was. Wow! Yeah, and this is just a trend. Like every single mo- modern blockbuster feels like it has to be over two hours. You know, because yeah, it's it's be wanting oh, to
1: get near that 2:30 mark.
2: Yeah, every it feels like it's a mandate nowadays. Indy starts asking Helena how she ended up like this, and they're getting chased from every different direction as they're in pursuit of the dial. Teddy gives Indy his watch back. Meanwhile, Voller and his men, they mace and kill Black Panther Chick, and Voller lets loose that his Schmidt alias is extremely (laughs) short-lived. So this didn't last long. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Teddy thinks just because Joan's first name is Indiana, that means that's where he's from, and that he didn't go to school with the Wright brothers. More old jokes, right, Matt?
3: Yeah, and uh, th- they come right out of a farmer's almanac, because I think we've heard them all before.
2: Helena says she keeps most of the locations from the journals in her head. Point. Indy tells Helena that he has a friend with a boat that can get them deep down to get the graphic coast, or the map which leads to the other half of the dial, and this is where we're treated to more of the red map tracing.
1: When he said he had a friend with a boat that was going to take them where they needed to go, Unless we were going to Amity Island, did you have somebody who you thought this was going to be? Because I did. As soon as he said it,
2: I uh, had no idea. Were uh, oh, they uh,
3: deep fake Robert Shaw?
1: Nah, not that. I thought we were getting Katanga back from um, Raiders.
3: Oh shit!
1: I thought that's where <laughs> they were going with it.
3: Yeah, what's didn't, he doing? They did do that because that actually would have been clever fan service. And they could, they're like, no, we can't include that in this movie. That, that's, that's such a no. That's a, that's, that's too overlooked. low. That's yeah. That's too low low cut.
1: But I didn't even recognize that they got Puss in Boots here. Like it wasn't until the end of this yeah. that I noticed who this was.
2: Yeah, let's get there. So we are then introduced to Spain's greatest frogman, Ronaldo, played by Antonio Banderas. And I'm like Adam; I completely forgot he was in this movie.
1: <laughs> I mean, he looks like Robert Shaw. Yeah, he does, he does not look like Antonio. Banderas. this is not Armand from Interview the Vampire.
0: No, really,
3: that's the first movie you fucking go to. <laughs> This man didn't do two turns as Zorro and three uh, maniachi happens? movies for you to refer to him as the guy from the fourth lead in Interview with a Vampire.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked there's not a drinking contest here. Instead, we get card tricks. Well, there was drinking
3: when I go home from the theater, trust me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We're then getting a theme of Helena's arc of the film, which is that the only thing worth believing in is cash, as she says. Oh, great! Great Indeed. way to
3: enforce uh, strong female empowerment. They're just after—they're just money grubbing women.
2: They're after the money.
3: <laughs> but to be fair, India is literally a gold digger, so of <laughs> <laughs> He's a gold robber, not a gold digger. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: He then tells Helena that if he had the power to go back in time. He would have stopped his son from enlisting in the Vietnam War, and he would have told him that he was going to die, and this would be the very thing that pretty much broke up the marriage between him and Marion. To (laughs) which Helena replies, you're still wearing the ring. There has been a lot of, shall we say, questionable writing in this movie. We've pointed it out, but this, I feel, I think is the perfect way to write Mutt out of the story. No one, probably Ford first and foremost, wanted shy back here, and if you were to write him out, this was the perfect way to do so, and it explains why Indy is where he's at in the beginning well, at the half-hour point of this film, after that 25-minute. I liked the way this was. I liked the way Ford delivered it. Matt, do you have anything good to say about this movie? <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought Ford killed it.
3: This reminded mm. people that he is actually a really good actor, uh, when he's given those opportunities. But I think I called this as the way to write Shia out of the movie where he was killed in Vietnam, because I read somewhere they were going to address his absence somehow, and that was the only thing I could think of outside of him being an associate because that character was so hated. He was a conspirator that helped Lee Harvey Oswald shoot Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But but what, what is Helena's reaction? She just goes, "Oh." After after he tells her the story cuz this this woman has her mouth open in more scenes than Kristen Stewart in the Twilight movies. Like every time I look at this this, this fish-faced bitch, I want to scream. <laughs>
2: We are going to have people after our heads after this podcast. Adam, are you uh, with Just us? Mind. Do you think this is a good scene? <laughs> Adam, do you think it's a good uh, way of writing this character out?
1: I'm not surprised. I think it's a cheap way out, but I do think it's the right choice. you went back to his home planet. You know, I mean... Um, Literally, um, aliens. Yeah.
3: Well, no, it'd be, but, another, dimen- it'd be another dimension for
1: Yeah, interdimensional. But it's timely with the Vietnam War. He wasn't drafted. He signed up, so they actually gave character a little impetus that way. But it also reflects on Indian Marion's marriage, which you hear over and over that parents that lose a child and it devastates and destroys and rests apart the, the family. So I do think it works on multiple levels. Matt's exactly right. Harrison Ford shows that he can act when he chooses to, and he does here. Uh, I think it's well done, I think it's emotional and I think it plays well.
2: Helena grabs some dynamite and Ronaldo gives some diving instructions oh, as no, well no, as warns. No, mourns- you, you missed something. You missed a very important detail
3: what do we see Go. her do? Oogling over a shirtless man. Oh yeah, it, yeah it's, it's not okay in And in, in Kathleen Kennedy movies when men do it, but movie, but women, no problem. Like Jesus, like I, I was so mad watching this movie, I almost, I almost couldn't even see straight at certain points.
2: <laughs> you said you went by yourself. Yeah, Helena grabs some dynamite, and Ronaldo gives some diving instructions as well as warns them about the snake-looking eels that lurk beneath. <laughs> Down they go. And I wasn't expecting a Jacques Jacques Cousteau diving expedition in my indie film.
1: No. They show... It's funny. They show the little part of the trailer when Sala's talking about, you know, underwater. And they show a little clip that happens here. I thought that's it. I thought it was going to be like a little flashback. I wasn't expecting to go see diving.
2: They head down. And, of course, the further they go, the more eels we start seeing lurking about. They grab the map before the eels attack. I don't know. This eel scene... It felt like a cheap way of recreating the Well of Souls, and not very well, and the CGI is not very good either.
1: I just, it, To me, it doesn't make sense why you're... I mean, it's, one, every Indiana Jones do, film does it, every adventure film does it, every Bond film does it. You're going here to get a piece so that you can understand the piece to direct you to another piece. You could have cut this out, saved yourself 25 minutes, and the film would have been no different whatsoever for it. I don't understand what they're getting other than it's something that they need for the end of the film. That's it. Like, I don't understand where this plays.
3: The, the only reason they go down here is because that tablet has directions to the other half of the dial. Yep. Mm-hmm. But the movie is so quick to jump from scene to scene that sometimes it forgets to explain why they're doing the things they're doing. You know, Raiders is perfectly paced and the, the scenes where the characters talk and actually explain the plot Help make that movie as good as it is. There's practically none of that here. This is only here to give the villains time to teleport to their location, uh, which mm-hmm. they do in this entire movie <laughs> over and over.
2: When they make their way back up, they see that Voller's men have all boarded the boat. They take the Graficos as well as kill poor Rinaldo. Nice cameo, Antonio. <laughs> That didn't take long. Hulk bullies Indy down, and Helena says that she'll help them translate the map as Voller pours diamonds into her hand. She starts her translation as she shows Indy that she still has a stick of dynamite hidden. She distracts them until he uses her cigarette to burn the wick. She throws the stick down, and they escape on another boat, proving that when you're in a tight spot, dynamite.
1: This scene, though, did one of the... It made me stop and tilt my head like a confused dog. There was a rule in the MPAA that there cannot be casual smoking in movies that are not rated R. She uses it for that, but Voller's just smoking up a storm. I was really surprised they allowed that, and I, I, for some reason, it stopped my mind to make me go, holy shit, they're smoking in a PG-13 movie, because it's been banned, for the most part, for the last decade.
3: Well, mm. he's a Nazi, so it's okay. yeah.
2: yeah. Matt, did you like how they got out of this?
3: Outside of the fact that Indiana Jones has no agency and can't get himself out
2: of any situation without her help,
3: no, I did not like this.
0: Okay.
2: <laughs> I just love riling him up. <laughs> Indy burns the map, which reveals ancient gold from the Nile, and Indy says that it's going in a museum. I think he just gets
3: C- in Nile and keeps saying the same phrase over and over. I know. And, and he goes, my friend was just murdered, and all she can muster is, sorry. Yeah. Like, Again, why am I supposed to like this character?
2: (laughs) Indy says the map says to head to Sicily, and we're seeing more red traces as they head there. They're where?
3: South America at this point?
2: Yeah. I wish they could have taken a
3: a boat and just, you know how how there's that montage of the red line going? Uh, Uh They go through the Amazon and throw her into a pit of piranhas and call it a day.
2: (laughs) I thought they were in Greece. Yeah, they went to Greece, I thought. They get, maybe there. Maybe they
3: get to Greece. I think.
2: They get to Greece eventually, yeah. but they go to Tan- Tangier. That's right, they go to Tangier first. We cut to Italy, where Helena reveals a new get-up, and Teddy gets upset that it seems India is running the show now, but Helena insists that she is, and according to Matt, she really is. Basically,
3: yeah, like, <laughs> Indiana Jones, from this point on, is the side character. He has become the sidekick. And don't give mm-hmm. me his age as the excuse for that.
1: This is when I start to feel the length a little bit. The boat scene... This, I mean, I do think I'm like, okay, we're getting one or two set pieces, one or two countries too many. I also don't really buy villains looking out a boat going, they're going the wrong way. And the <laughs> that, you know,
0: that's how they're going to
1: follow them to the correct point of a country uh. across an ocean. Mm. I mean, not to mention they, when they're behind them, as to math point, they will teleport ahead of them when necessary, and then behind them when necessary, based on the script.
3: Th- this, but... this is, like, when he says they're going east, that doesn't mean you know exactly where they're going.
0: Exactly. <laughs> There's, a There's, a
3: scene. There's a scene in the Emperor's New Groove where they go, how'd you get here before us? And she goes, how did we? And he pulls out a map and he goes, well, I guess that doesn't make any sense. Like,
0: <laughs>
3: it's
2: that scene. <laughs> Helena stands up, and they see that, you guessed it, Teddy is missing.
3: Yay! He ends up getting... Yeah. Uh, 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 Garrett was hoping to slit his throat and bury him under a swing set.
2: <laughs> he ends up getting kidnapped. So, Indy and Helena, they steal a Volkswagen bug to chase him down.
3: And also, we forgot to mention, because this just popped in my head, because I, I have so many thoughts about this movie. In what world do these shitty cars have the horsepower to catch up to a German luxury vehicle.
2: Indy says they're not going to hurt him. They're going to use him for the dial. They head to the caves as they sing until the echo leads them towards Archimedes' tomb. Matt, what do you think about this choice of song that they use here? Da-da-da-da!
3: Oh, oh, God. Uh, I gotta <laughs> say, though, from here on out, the movie rehooked me. I, I dozed off. I was not having a good time with the middle portion, but from here on, I'm not gonna say how I felt about it overall, but I was engaged from here on out.
1: I like the tomb. I, I mean, to me, this feels like what Indiana Jones is. We're literally going back and tomb raiding, grave robbing it in a modern time. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy when we finally get to go into Dionysus ear. Here, here, like, it feels like something is is back where it should be.
2: Yeah, I'm with both of you. I'm, I'm reengaged here. I was like Matt. I was kind of tuned out. However, when they oh, went deep sea diving,
1: I am extremely bothered that the bad guys steal Teddy. Are driving to this place? Indy and Helena figure out where they need to go. They take off after them. Get there before them. <laughs> like something. It, uh, the. The circumstances for how they suddenly are in this cave ahead of the bad guys that are going to the same spot makes no
3: sense to me whatsoever.
2: The editing in this movie, and I noticed it a few times in it, actually, is way off.
3: Yeah. Well, there's three editors on this movie.
2: They didn't bring Michael Kahn back.
3: Oh, well, it's also not Kaminsky. But yeah. They didn't bring him back to do the cinematography. Mm-hmm. Which is the one thing I, I, I do like that they're not, he's not trying to, like, ape the visual style as much. Yeah. But it also kind of makes this movie feel more like a spin-off than an actual official entry.
1: It it does, but but I think most other filmmakers would have tried to do, quote-unquote, Spielberg shots, but I think they would have been lesser for (laughs) it. Well, if this went to fucking
3: Abrams, you're goddamn right.
2: They climb up the caves of this tomb, and, and then the only time I laugh this entire movie is when Indy starts wondering out loud what he's doing climbing up a tomb with a woman half his age that hasn't experienced having to drink the blood of Kali or been tortured in voodoo <laughs> or been shot nine times. This is the only time Temple of Doom is ever referenced in this series, and I loved it. <laughs>
1: I thought he was talking about Callista Flockhart. I-, oh, shit. <laughs> I thought it was no, a nice they, little... No, blunt.
2: they already showed a
3: couple bony skeletons. <laughs> oh, for Christ's sake. <laughs> it, it was to me
1: funny, though, that the only one that he mentioned directly this way was was Temple. You know, he
3: didn't talk about mm-hmm.
1: an arc. He didn't talk about drinking from a grail. It was drinking the blood of Kali
3: and getting stabbed in the back. Well, he should have mentioned jumping out of the raft. So, like, I survived that.
2: This is when it's revealed that Teddy tried stealing Helena's purse while in a casino. I see that every day. as they are pursued by Voller. They move further in as creepy, crawly bugs encompass them, and this was the only time Jen looked away was during this scene. They are referencing Temple of Doom so much in this movie. <laughs>
3: Absolutely. Yeah, they, they reference Temple of Doom more than they do Crystal Skull.
2: Or Raiders.
3: Well, no, this is no, in the Raiders. You know, they, yeah. they, they, they keep the first and the third with a biblical object in the prologue, and no mm. one's their Nazis.
2: And he discovers Athena, goddess of war, as he also discovers water displacement. They get in the pool as it collapses. Teddy starts running away, but he's caught and handcuffed. But Teddy and the big brute, they are taking into the depths of the water, and we see something that is just inexcusable. This big thug is not taken down by Indy or even Helena. He's handcuffed by Teddy to the bars under the water. What?
1: When this happens, I'm like, okay, well, he's coming back. Like, this isn't going to kill him. This little knockoff short round isn't going to kill this guy by hand. He's clearly coming back. I can't believe this was the end of this guy.
2: Enraging. Is it bad But yeah. I like this?
0: <laughs> yes. It's very
2: bad. you are out of your mind, Goudreau. And this is that, that
3: classic, you know, short round type of ingenuity.
2: not like, he, not like it, he outrustles him. I would have preferred he took a torch to him. Um, you talk about the, the big guy torching Teddy? Yeah. Yeah. Indy and Helena, they find Archimedes' tomb which is where the dial is located. They also find a modern watch. This is when Voller and his men enter, and they take the dial, as well as reassemble it. Voller shoots Indy and takes him hostage. The movie keeps forgetting the
3: severity of his bullet wound. Yes. Like there's, there's points where he's on death's door, and there's other parts where it's just a scratch. And, and this is sort of a reference to the third movie.
0: Yeah,
2: that's a good point. A Nazi man. Voller then reveals his plan. Get this, boys. His plan is to go back in time and assassinate Hitler in 1939, so that he himself can lead Germany to victory and win World War II.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, can I say something here? Go. Saw that coming. There's a. Did you really? There's a shot in the opening prologue of him with a briefcase, and the way he's that made me think of Project Valkyrie, which is when a group of. When a group of Nazis tried to kill Hitler because he was decimating their effort and they thought he was going to lose them the war. So I had Mm -hmm. a feeling he wasn't going to try to save it, that he was going to try to take over. So I found this perfectly fitting, not only for the character, but for the time. Like, I dug this decision. And I think it was a different way to go because I don't think most people would go this way.
2: Definitely different. No, I,
3: I, I I like this reveal. All the other Nazi villains, they've sort of followed Hitler blindly like most of them did, but there was a contingent that realized this guy's just fucking crazy. You know, and he's not he's not he wasn't a military strategist. You know, part of the reason why Germany was so dominant was because they just had the forces, among other things. So and the fact that Thomas Kretschmann was in Valkyrie not that I recommend you watch Valkyrie because it's not very good. I kinda like but it. it. But
2: my dad really yeah, liked it. Yeah,
3: but some of the documentary stuff is, is really fascinating. i mm-hmm. say I would've rather watched that than
2: <laughs> you know, watch a 10-hour
3: documentary, then, then probably watch this again.
2: Teddy tells Helena that he kind of knows how to fly and leaves to start the plane. Fly, yes. But he Plan, takes... no. Mm-hmm. I was just, I was waiting for that line.
3: I was also going to say, if you know he can't fly the plane, why did you fucking ask him?
2: But Teddy takes too long, so Helena gets in pursuit of the plane with Voller and Jones before it takes off. She gets on it. As Teddy also takes off, wailing away in his awful screen that would make Willie blush.
3: I, I also love how all, all of them put on Nazi uniforms. As if when they show up the, the, in 1939, they wouldn't know they were Nazis. But the name exactly. Juergen Vaughn now, and, yeah. and his henchman <laughs> is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed tall guy.
2: Voller and his men, they head up in the air, and Indy says Archimedes never thought about Continental Drift, so Voller's coordinates would seem to be completely off. They don't listen to Indy's warnings, though, and they head straight to the fissure.
0: Meanwhile, the owner
2: of Teddy's plane wakes up, and the planes drift without sound for a few seconds.
1: This is a better Kessel run than happens in Solo.
2: You guys keep bringing up Solo every fucking podcast. Down they go until they end up in not Sicily in 1939, but 212 B.C. in the Siege of Syracuse. This was set up when Syracuse was mentioned earlier in the film, but not this Syracuse. Interesting twist. I, oh boy I couldn't believe they did this um, I can't either
3: But I, I respect them for going this far And I'm not going to lie, I kind of love this I thought I thought this was, I do too I thought this mm-hmm. this kind of saved the movie for me This third act it's, Except for one thing that happens later on that just irked me But I thought this was Look, we've done aliens, we've done Spirits making people's heads explode We got biblical knights Time travel's Pretty plausible, all things considered, and it's foreshadowed. I like that they go to an actual, you know, they go to the time period that befits the person who actually created the dial. So thematically, it makes sense. It's not like they went to 1620 or whatever; they went really far back. I thought this was really inventive, and I I gotta I gotta say this was the one thing in the movie that genuinely surprised me. I didn't because when he talks about continental drift, I thought they were just going to turn the plane around. I didn't think they were actually going to follow through on this.
1: Luckily, one of the things that I had seen beforehand was, you're either going to go with the end of this movie or you're not. So I knew there was going to be some kind of weird twist. Did not, I, And that's when I pretty much kind of like shut off my freaking internet for the three days before this film because I'd already been spoiled on something else. I did not want to know, but I knew there was going to be something It was either a you go with it or you don't moment. I just thought they were going to end up in a completely different part of the world or an alternate timeline, you know, where maybe the Nazis already won something of that kind of sort. God knows every movie is about a multiverse alternate dimension kind of thing nowadays. I'm going to agree with both of you. I think this is ballsy. I kind of really dig that they decided to go this route. Is it over the top? Yeah. Is it more over the top than interdimensional beings? I don't think so. Um, Or a cup of Christ? You know, I think people have an issue with, you know, separating religion from that must be taken as real no matter what, where something like this isn't. I think that's where some people have a problem. But once we get here, I also think that the possibilities for how this is going to end just ramped up dramatically that I did not know what was going to happen. And I think that's a great way to end a movie is I don't know. Is he going to die? Is he going to stay here voluntarily? Are they going to go back? Like, what is the possibility? What are the ramifications? So as much as I can't, I can't believe this got approved (laughs) for one. I can't believe this didn't get shut down, but I kind of adore that they decided to go this route.
2: The most ballsy thing I've seen a blockbuster do in a while is this twist right here. I'm with both of you. I thought this was an amazing twist and I was so with where this movie was going. And once, once Indy called out that Archimedes did not think of Continental Drift, you better turn around, I knew something was coming. And I was not spoiled by this. I had no idea what the fuck was happening. And once once they ended up here and Indy looks down and we're seeing Roman soldiers, I was like, holy shit, they went here. <laughs> and, I, I, and I didn't know how this was going to end. I thought maybe he was going to die here. But Spielberg has been out in the press and he has said, there's no way in, that we would kill Indy off. So that thought left my head pretty quick. But... This was ballsy, man. I enjoyed this. Indy knows where they are right away. The Roman soldiers below believe the planes above to be dragons, so they start firing at them. We're seeing spears go through the plane. The plane goes down as Helena hangs off of it, and Indy finally asks what she's doing here.
1: Part of the only issue I have, though, is at this point, Holbrook should have been dead and gone long before this, because he's got nothing to do but stand there firing a machine gun, cackling like a freaking idiot (laughs) once they show up here.
2: Indy fires a gun, not the gun, at Voller's henchmen. And one thing I want to point out that you'd think Mr. Big Fan Mangold could have gotten right, in the other films, the lead bad guys and girl always suffered because of their greed. Not just by death, but spectacular death. Belloc opened the Ark, he literally exploded. Molaram, one of the Shankara Stones, he was punished by Shiva and fell to his death while hitting his head on a mountain and getting torn apart by crocodiles. Donovan grew old in front of Elsa and, well... We remember what happened to Spocko. What the hell happened to Voller? Oh, he goes down with the plane. That's it? It was a yeah, decision Disney. as much as it is that
3: that's where Disney stepped in. Because those Marvel movies, it's always people just getting sucked into a portal or falling off a building to kill off the villains. Yeah, I, I, was, I was disappointed by this. Because that was the one thing I wanted to see. I'm like, all right, how are they going to horrifically kill off the villains? But it was done poorly.
2: And that was the tension, right? That that was the tension. That was one of the last bouts of tension, along with what was going to happen to Indy. What would happen to Valor? Because we've seen it over and over. Oh, no. Just down with a burning plane.
1: Yeah, it's anticlimactic. I mean, there's always a monkey paw ending for the villain. That doesn't happen. He dies kind of like the henchman. You're like, wait, that's it? Like, he just crashes and that... Huh. But I do think that this film gives the entire end to indie, and I think it's important that it gets there, but I think they should have found a way to, I don't know, maybe he's ripped apart through the space-time because of how it, you know, just something, but definitely anticlimactic. Uh, yeah. But it's, it, you know what? It, it goes with this villain being under, everything having to do with the villains is overwhelming from beginning to end.
2: Underwhelming,
3: you mean? Yeah. Yeah, they, um, the Romans should have, like, drawn and quartered him or something.
1: Or exactly. F- or fell on the spear of destiny. That we see at the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. something of that. Which I thought that was going to show up here when we got here. I was like, "Oh, the dial of destiny's actually been a fake McGuff from the whole time."
2: Indian Helena, they fall out of the plane with a parachute as it goes down. Teddy lands the plane while very unconvincingly telling the real pilot of the plane that those are his friends.
1: <sighs> I don't know why that
2: guy's here. <laughs> I know why the fuck is this guy here. <laughs> We see Archimedes get his hands on the dial as Indy and Helena land. Indy looks at the war around him and says it's incredible. He then tells Helena that he plans on staying. And yes, he's serious. I must ask you boys, how would this have gone over with you? Would you have liked if they have gone this route? Did you think he was going to go here?
1: First I thought he was going to die here. Then when that didn't happen, I did think he was going to stay. I think it's an interesting swerve that, you know, we think that there's just this MacGuffin so that you can pick where you're going through time. And it's quickly glossed over. But no, Archimedes put this together to basically, no matter who found it, they were going to have to show up there to help them. It's a weird kind of almost like an SOS device is really what it ends up being. But I thought Indy was going to stay here. And I thought we were going to end the movie with somebody finding the whip and fedora in some ancient tomb Hundreds of thousands of years later.
3: That's where I thought they were going to. I would have been okay with him either dying or or staying here to you know because they didn't really talk about the blood, the butterfly effect being mm-hmm. part of the the rules, so he wouldn't have really fucked up history per se. Or Archimedes would have amended the dial so he could like go to different time periods if he wanted. I gotta stay quiet because you have to finish how this resolves.
1: This is more like a like a Chris Nolan time is circular type of thing here.
3: Yeah, this is like Inception, basically.
2: Archimedes shows up and Indy introduces himself to him. Helena talks him down and says that the window to get out is closing and that his work at home is not done. In Indy's mind, his work is done, and he puts on his hat saying he needs to do this. She says, me too, and then punches him out.
3: All right, I'm going to say this on the record. If the genders in this scene were flipped... We would never hear the end of it. You're right. Uh, Meaning what? What a selfish bitch! Like I, can't, <laughs> I, like, I can't say this any more straightforwardly than that. She removes him of all his free will. He's fucking earned this ending. He should, like, who the fuck is she to do this? Like, this was Marion, that's one thing. But again, I have to ask a million dollar question. What is there to like about this character?
1: Yeah, and this is where I think that so much has been redone over the years of this script that he lost a son, he gained a daughter, and his goddaughter, and I think she lost her father. Like, I think all that is missing in the actual dialogue, and and I think that was exchanged out for a car chase in Tangier and a boat dive.
3: And one flashback.
1: Yeah, but I think that that is supposed to be there.
2: We see Indy wake up at home with the subway going on around him, and Helena shows back up to ask how his shoulder is, to which he replies, better than my jaw.
1: <laughs> <She>
2: si-
1: <laughs> <Adam's loving this. laughs> I, I laugh then and now, like, Matt, one, Matt is exactly right. If he knocked her out to bring her back, there would have been protests like there was showing, uh, what was it, the X-Men Apocalypse, where it showed
0: freaking
3: frickin- oh, uh, oh, yeah. out. I'm not even saying, yeah, like, the face, a... but, like, if a man took away her free will to stay in that time period.
0: Yeah.
3: Like, it's that conceit. Like, if, if it was that, it would have been like, you know, this movie would have gotten mansplained by fucking everybody. But when
1: he wakes up, and says it, I'm chuckling.
2: Yeah, Kathleen Kennedy wouldn't let that go through. Are you kidding? Helena says that she couldn't let him stay because he would have changed the course of history and that he is meant to be here.
3: Not really, because the Nazis would have found the Ark either way, so that that point is invalid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Indy asked, for who? And who shows up but Teddy and Marion, Karen Allen in a gray wig? Now, I saw none of the spoilers for this movie. As I said earlier, I had no idea she was in this. And while the whole, are you back, Indy, and hearing Salah sing again for me, did it for me, I, I... Got a little bit of a, you know, chill up my spine as a fan of the series. It would have gotten me so much more if it was in a better movie.
1: I I say I mentioned that, you know, I'd heard, you know, how does Karen Allen feel about being in it. So I thought the pictures that we had gotten, I thought that was going to be it. So I had forgotten. By the time we got here, I was like, okay, we got the Karen Allen, you know, we're going to get. When she shows up and walks through that door. It got every emotion out of me right then and there. I I frickin' loved it, or walking in with Sala, knowing what they had gone through. Like, it is an absolute emotional, manipulative moment with the music and everything else, and it fucking worked on me.
3: I wish the movie justified this ending. The, the last act, basically, I wish it was in service of a better two acts that preceded it. It is member berries, and that, that's something that I always kind of rebel against for the most part, but I think bringing this full circle with, with her was the right call. But I, I cause I had heard the same thing Adam did, that she was gonna be in this. I thought she was gonna be a cameo at like his funeral. Cause I thought for sure they were gonna, mm. they were gonna kill him off. They were gonna do like Avengers Endgame, where they pan through all the cameos, like fucking Short Round would be there, and, uh, <laughs> Oh. but but they didn't do that. It, it, it's fine. I just wish I liked the movie overall up to this point. Once she comes through
1: the door, I thought Shorty was going to be behind her. I thought they'd kept no. that one. Ki-ha, I Ki-ha, he was
2: Kwan was already, Kiha Kwan had already been on the press saying he wasn't in it. So did she. I want to know
3: what the internet outrage would have been if Willie walked through the door instead <laughs> of... Oh. <laughs>
1: Willie walked through. I would have sounded like Matt had throughout this entire podcast.
2: (laughs) Well, Spielberg would have been unhappy because that meant he wouldn't have dinner that night. (laughs) Sorry. That was a really bad misogynist joke. I'm sorry. You can add add the hit list
3: to include you now. (laughs) You're going to get Schindler's (laughs) fist.
2: We see Indy's hat hanging outside his place and uh, has uh, 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 b-
1: before that uh, before that <laughs> we play the cutest little homage back to Raiders of the Lost Ark just the, yeah. the talk about their son because not only him like the fact that she actually gave a qual- because for you know Crystal Skull we talked about her brain you know being back I loved it but yes she played one note and it was happy to be here she shows some acting chops here you feel that she's hurt you feel that she's broken and i feel The two of them together are broken together. So to have that little it hurts everywhere and that throwback, you know what it did? It made me roll a freaking tear.
2: And I'll say what I just said about five minutes ago. It would have made me do that as the massive fan of this character, of these characters, as the person who has spearheaded this retrospective. I would have felt that way if it was in a better movie. I'm with Matt. I think this movie should have justified this scene. This scene is a great scene. I just wish it was in a better film. We see Indy's hat hanging outside his place and a hand snag it as that booming theme plays and credits roll on Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And as Adam told us in chats earlier this week, no scene after the final credits. And every single person in that theater must have thought that there was a final scene because they all stayed through the entire credits. (laughs) And me and Jen and James, we were just like, fuck this, we're leaving. And we just took off. All right. Wow. Scale of one to ten. What do we give Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny? Adam, you first, sir.
1: The early buzz on this film was not great. The talk out of can was really not great. And the two trailers, two or three trailers, the TV spots, whatever I saw, I did not have a whole lot of expectation going into this. I felt this is some of the worst marketing that Disney has pulled off in. I don't know how long. These trailers did nothing for me at all. Uh, I didn't have experience with Phoebe Waller-Bridge from anything. I didn't know Antonio Banderas was going to be in this film, but I went to it because it was an Indiana Jones movie. We were discussing it, and I hadn't seen one in theaters in quite a while. You know, last one I saw it at Drive-In, so I hadn't seen one in a movie theater since uh, Last Crusade. I didn't know what to expect, but I walked out of this movie extremely happy and extremely satisfied. Uh, Is Indiana Jones the same character that he was? Before? No, he's not. He's an 80-year-old Indiana Jones. Phoebe Waller-Briggs, and I I absolutely understand, and I know how polarizing that character is going to be. I was into her. I, I liked what she brought to it. I liked that she carried the story along because I felt she kind of needed to, just because of, you know, what you could get out of Indiana Jones at his age in this. And as controversial as that might be, I... I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge kind of steals the show in a lot of this. The villains are underwhelming, and that's disappointing because they got good actors to be the villains. But maybe Mads Mikkelsen just really isn't that good outside of Casino Royale. You know, maybe he doesn't have a second note to play, but they're very underwritten. The action scenes go on a little too long. You could have cut some out. This could have been a much more crisp two-hour, five, two-hour, ten-minute movie. It didn't need to be 2.32. The third act, once you once we get through that space portal, once, we, once the Millennium Falcon does the castle run and it, you know, explodes out of hyperspace, you go with it or you don't. And if you're willing just to go, what the hell? I think it's much more satisfying that way. I could see people wanting to get up and walk out because they're just not willing to have that experience. But I thought it was ballsy in a way that this type of giant film and this type of giant studio – don't do anymore. I'm glad they didn't kill him off. I think there would have been way too many comparisons to Logan at that point. But I had a really, really good time with this movie. And I wasn't expecting to. Maybe that kind of hyped it up for me. But I I thought it was going to come out really down on it. And I I had a good time. I laughed. I literally cried. um, And I was pumped up through a lot of the action, even though I felt they went on a little too long. This was a strong movie. I hope when my dad gets back from vacation that he and I can go see it together. Because I want to see it again. That's how much I enjoyed it. (sighs) <sighs> See, it's tough because I, I rated the other films and you know sometimes you kind of want to resort and rescore afterwards, and I'm not going to do that, but this one walking out and after this discussion, I'm going to put it at a solid 7. I had a really good time for this film.
2: 7 out of 10 from Mr. Bunch, Matt Goudreau, your turn to unleash sure. what do you give Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny?
3: Well, I, I really wanted to love this movie. I, I genuinely did. But Every time I thought I was going to get on board, either something would happen or there would be another misstep that I thought in the storytelling. For all the talk about oh, Harrison Ford's too old to play this part and you know he's going to sleepwalk, Harrison Ford's the best thing in the movie. And everything around him doesn't feel like it's up to the standard that it should be. Whether that's the set pieces, the action, whether that's the obstacles that he has to overcome outside of just the script shitting on him constantly. I mean, this movie should be a German... There's Nazis. It should be a German Schatza film with the amount of excrement that is thrown on Indiana Jones throughout this script. And he has his perfect ending taken away from him by... One of the five most reprehensible characters I have ever seen in a movie. I I have not hated a character like I have Helena, maybe in my entire cinematic life. Maybe I'll feel different on a second viewing, but as of now, for a a two-and-a-half-hour movie, and for me to be predominantly bored through most of it, is disappointing. Especially for an Indiana Jones franchise that didn't have the highest marks for me outside of the first one, but God, Raiders I'll put up against any any modern movie nowadays and probably kick the shit out of most of them. I was really disappointed. I was bummed out for three quarters of it, but then that that last part, the fact that they really went full steam into uncharted territory, I give them marks for that and it, did, it didn't win me back per se as far as raising my score exponentially, but it took me out of the, the, the doldrums that I was in. I'm going to land, I had a score written down, but I have to factor in Helena considerably into my my opinion. And I think she is toxic with a capital T. She is the kind of character that if I passed her in life in the Sahara Desert, dying of thirst, I would throw my canteen two miles away and say sink or swim, bitch. That's how much I hated her. So I'm going to land on a 4 on 10 for this movie.
2: 4 on 10 from Goudreau. I said last week that i was afraid going into the screening i was afraid because i had little to no confidence in james mangold and the way he handles this material i was afraid because of what the mouse house could do to this i was afraid because this series that i grew up loving so much was now in the hands of not only disney but james mangold disney needs to stop this this was really painful for me to watch I sat there and I and I put a face on we came out of the theater I did not really let my thoughts known about this until last night on the 4th of July, me and Jen had a few shots and I kind of let loose on Teddy. I let loose on a lot of the problems that we talked about in this podcast. I have major issues with this plot. I have major issues with this being Indy's last adventure and the way this was written. And I'm lock stock with Matt. I have the same hatred for a character in this movie, but not towards Helena. Is towards Teddy. I think he is just toxic. Terrible. Terrible, terrible. This is not the way to send this character off. This final scene is not earned. This movie is just, it was painful, and I don't see myself watching this again. I think about when my dad watched Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and he came out saying, that was a really fun time. I don't see him walking out of this saying, that's a fun time. I did not have a really good time watching this movie. I chuckled a couple times. There's a couple times where I did get that old indie feel, but it was few far in between. This was a slog, two and a half hours, way too long. I get you want to send your character off in a big send-off. I get that Harrison Ford has said, he's not coming back. We're going to do this one, and that's it. So you want to give the audience as much time with this character as they feel they need, but this is not the way to do it. For that final scene, and for a few instances in this movie, I'm with Matt, I'm giving this a four, and I hate the fact that I'm giving an Indiana Jones for a film of four. This was not a fun theatrical experience, and I don't see this completing my collection. This was a real fumble, and I blame Kathleen Kennedy, I blame Lucasfilm, I blame James Mangold. I cannot believe that this is what they turned out. Kathleen Kennedy has come out and said, look, this is going to be Harrison Ford's final turn as his character, but they do have ideas in mind, and yes, the name Short Round has come up in discussions. We mentioned it when we did Temple of Doom, Matt. Can we do any more adventures with any of these characters? Would you be welcome back into this world?
3: At this juncture, I genuinely don't want to see anything else. I don't believe that you should keep taking multiple swings if you keep striking out. It's sort of the what they've tried to do with Terminator for the last three movies.
0: Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I,
3: I, think, I think this franchise is very much in that state where we had, I think, the first... Two Terminators are great. And then, you know, I like the third one, but there's been nothing with those last three to recommend continuing. I'm sort of the same way here. Could you do spinoffs? Of course you can. But, you know, to quote Jurassic Park, you you were so preoccupied with whether you, whether you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. And that's kind of my thought of this movie, where it's like, did we really need another one? I know a lot of people are going to say, yeah, of course, because Crystal Skull was so bad. Uh, I think the first half of Crystal Skull is better than the entirety of this movie, uh, and then it obviously falls apart in the second half, as we talked about. But I'm ready to just leave this in a museum and not see another Indiana Jones movie. I don't care who plays them. Adam? That's
1: yeah, not necessary. I understand they bought Lucasfilm... I understand they have kind of, I mean, mostly the rights to them. I mean, they still have to share something with Paramount because Paramount got a credit in this as well, maybe distribution. But just it's okay to let these things lie. You know, I think you had an opportunity to have a student go looking for their professor when Professor Indiana Jones went missing. You know what? You didn't do that. You haven't set up someone to take the whip, and you had an Indiana Jones franchise that is still adored. You have, to me, one of the best movies ever made with Raiders of the Lost Ark, and champion that. I don't need this to continue. I don't need an animated series. I don't need a young Indiana Jones series. You know what? Go back and make some decent National Treasure movies, because that first one was a lot of fun. You know, do something there, not the abysmal series you put out. You don't need to keep, and you know what? As a shareholder, you don't need to keep taking losses on films because you can't control yourself anymore. So, no, just let Indiana Jones rest in peace. You know, let let him have his happy ending.
2: All right, one more order of business before we get out of here. It's time to rank the films. I'll go ahead and go first. Number one, for me, Raiders of the Lost Ark, without a doubt. I've already said that's my number one favorite film of all time. We spoke for over three hours in the recording, and then the podcast came out to a little over two. For all the reasons why, go back and listen to that podcast. Number two was a toss-up, but I went with Last Crusade as number two because I, again... I really enjoyed the father-son dynamic as an adult and watching that film, and I liked the way that resolved. I thought that was another really good send-off for these characters. Number three, Temple of Doom. For me, seeing George Lucas and Steven Spielberg let out their real hurt about being divorced and broken up with and put these characters through what they put them through was kind of fun for me to watch. I enjoyed seeing just two kids playing in a sandbox and having fun, even if that movie itself was not fun. But I I enjoyed that film and Short Round grew on me. Number four, I found more to like about Crystal Skull than a lot of people do. Me and Matt were we were again lock lockstep with that. I think the first half of that movie and the final scene of that movie is near perfect Indiana Jones stuff. I think that's really it's a really really fun time. And a distant fifth, distant is this film. And like I said, I don't think I would see this again. That final scene got me, but. God damn! It did not deserve to be here. Matt, what are your rankings, sir? So I gotta say we're pretty close. There's one change. So I'm, I'm gonna
3: start from the top as well. Number one is Raiders, and it's not close. There is a drop-off to my second, which is Last Crusade. And here's where the change is. I put Crystal Spell third. Interesting. Smack-dab in the middle for me. It, it's got problems, but like I said, I love I loved the first half. Uh, then it almost falls apart. Fourth is Temple of Doom, and then... Dial of Destiny bringing up the rear, which I I didn't think I was going to say when we started this this series. I thought we were going to end... If I didn't love the movie, I thought I would at least put it higher than Temple and Crystal Skull, but unfortunately, it was not the case. So that's my order, but I will also say Raiders is the only one of these five movies I hold in the highest of esteem. If you recall, Last Crusade's my second, I gave it a seven, so... As a series, I don't necessarily love the franchise, but I adore Raiders of the Lost Ark.
2: And I'm with you, Matt, where I wanted this one to rise above. I wanted it to be in the middle tier as well. It just couldn't do it. But here's the list I'm looking forward to. Adam, where do you hold these movies?
1: So I'll go top-down also, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a perfect film. We all discussed it. I don't need Beyond That. Like It is, it is that freaking good. Then I'm going Last Crusade. As Matt said, it's a sizable step down. It's a fallout with a boulder behind you step between one and two. That's just how great Raiders is. And then I'm going Last Crusade. I was, much as y'all were, I was trying to decide, all right, what's number three? Because, you know, this is here, this is here, this is here. Dial of Destiny is number three. I liked it. I en- Holy shit. <laughs> I enjoyed walking out of that movie. I was like, man, I had a great time. I felt rejuvenated in, in with that film. I, I really enjoyed it. Then I'm going Temple of Doom. What brought... Dial down for you is what brings Temple down for me. Because there's parts of that movie I love, and there's parts of that movie that I loathe. And then Kingdom of the Crystal Skull brings up the rear, and I almost put that above Temple. Like Those two are neck and neck for me, but this series has got big steps as it goes
3: down the ladder. That does. And there are Indiana Jones knockoffs that I like more than any of the sequels. Like The Mummy. The Mummy, and I would watch the first National Treasure before I watch any
2: of the sequels.
1: Yeah, National uh, Treasure. Shoot, um... Uh, King
2: uh, Solomon's Mines.
1: <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, it was the one with Kathleen <laughs> Turner in,
3: uh... Oh, uh, Romancing the Stone? The stone. Romancing the Stone. Oh, that's a good mm. one. Jewel of the Nile's crap, though. Don't don't watch
2: that Yeah, yeah don't, don't, that. don't bother with that one. The stone. I actually lied. There's one more order of business, because Matt... Uh, we've kind of hinted at it, but why don't you reveal what our next retrospective will be?
3: You bet your ass I'll announce it. <laughs> um, so, point of order first. We are also, probably by the time you listen to this review, actually not, because the next new release is not coming out until next week. So, we are going to review the new Mission Impossible, which, by the way, unlike Dial of Destiny, that movie's getting great word of mouth.
0: Yeah, it <laughs> Is did, it really? Yeah.
3: We've got a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes right now with 100-plus reviews.
0: And I, I could be
3: more excited for that movie because I think that last Mission Impossible movie kicks all kinds of ass. But speaking of kicking ass, we're going 65 million years in the past where George Lucas left his brains. No, I, 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 I did. <laughs> we're doing another series that Garrett had done at the old place, but we're bringing back with two new hosts. Jurassic Park turns 30 years old this year, which I know is hard to believe for a lot of people. So we are going to do... The first three, much like Superman, we're going to do the original series and then come back to it at a later point. But yeah, we are going to do Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park 2, whatever the fuck, Lost World, and Jurassic Park 3 as our next series. I'm excited because I wasn't on those shows, nor was Adam, uh, and I, I've kind of teased some opinions that I have about those movies, and we've joked about Garrett's obsession with the kids in that movie. <laughs> So I can't be more excited to talk about those movies. And we're inadvertently redoing John Williams' entire catalog between Superman, Indiana Jones, and this. And we've already done Harry Potter.
2: Oh, yes. That, That was one of my most infamous retrospectives when I was over there. And Matt is big on these anniversaries, man. He's got anniversaries coming up for Jaws. He's got a whole bunch of things on this schedule. And... Yeah, I'm looking forward to revisiting those movie films. I haven't revisited them since we did that, and that was in the lead-up to Fallen Kingdom, and I still haven't seen the one that came out last year. So that's going to be an interesting series for me to revisit. I definitely have opinions on them as well, and Matt, as I recall, you're reading the book, aren't you?
3: It actually came in on Monday, so I've I've started going through it, and I'm already surprised nice. at how different it is. Yep.
2: Yeah, it is much different. I remember reading it in high school. We'll get to that when we get to that series. Adam, are you looking forward to revisiting Jurassic Park, sir? I
3: am, in a massive way.
1: Uh, I remember seeing the original in theaters. However, I've only seen The Lost World once, and I've never seen Jurassic Park 3. So, Wow. Yeah, th- so there's going to be some interesting takes as we go along, because I remember almost nothing about the second one, and clearly have no thoughts on the third, so I can't wait.
2: Ooh! Wow! I didn't know that when Matt made this guy. I didn't
1: even know that Spielberg directed past the first one. I did not know he <laughs> directed anything after the first. <laughs> well,
2: well, you wouldn't think so. It's not the
3: title, I don't know if it's-
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for God. Again, I feel like Matt at the end of Harry Potter. Like I feel my heart has been ripped out. Like in Temple of Doom. Like I just feel so disheartened with the way this series ended. But. If anything, I'm glad to have gone through it with you guys, so I appreciate you. Thank you for joining me. And by the time you listen to this again, maybe we would have done Mission Impossible. We are doing that. We have more new releases coming up. Hopefully I would have gotten The Flash out by this time. And a lot more coming up, so thank you, gentlemen. And until next week, when we review Jurassic Park, Hitler made mistakes, and with this podcast, we will correct them all. Thank you, gentlemen.
0: Dan Jones, what was briefly yours is now mine. A of fitting into your life's pursuits. You're about to become a permanent addition to this archaeological find. Who knows? In a thousand years, even you may be worth something. (laughs) Ha 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 Son of a bitch!
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective
0: Podcast. Well,
1: made it. Join us next week for an entirely new review.
0: Careful. You might get exactly what you wish for.
3: I wonder sometimes, monsieur, if you have that clearly in mind.
1: And if you like this podcast, please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast stream of choice for some of our blockbuster retrospectives, such as Avatar, Top Gun, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many more.
2: I should say you look rather lost, but then I cannot imagine where in the world the three of you would look at home.
0: There's nothing you have that I could possibly want.
1: And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts.
3: Well, I thought archaeologists were always funny little men searching for their mommies.
0: Mummies.
1: And a retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan.
2: There may be hundreds of skulls at Agatha. Whoever finds them will control the greatest natural force the world has ever known.
1: edited by Garrett, voiceovers by Adam,
0: you're my best friend, (gasps) give me your hat, why, because I'm going to puke in it.
1: Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such.
2: Indy! Henry! Follow me! I know the way! Ha!
1: Got lost in his own museum, huh? Uh-huh.
3: And it shows in some of the the blockbusters he did since Crystal Skull, Ready Player mm-hmm. One being the prime example. I would rather someone else do it than the Spielberg who thought Ready Player One was a good idea.
2: <laughs> You're always going to take shots and I at can, that
3: movie. I'd watch it over Minority Report, but it's still wow. not very good, Adam. Oh yeah, my
1: god! Hang on, I I, I, I got to <laughs> pick know. up my. Mug that I just threw. Um, Damn it, yeah, we're going to get
2: into those. Um, All right, let's talk about our theatrical experiences, as we do. I went yesterday. As as we're talking, it's a Tuesday. I went Monday. The Monday after it was, uh, I'm sorry, it's Wednesday. I went, as of today, it's Wednesday. I went...
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is something nice to be said about that old uh-huh. I did not have <laughs> yeah. a fucking no Apple Watch at my peripheral vision for two
2: hours. You and those Apple Watches. Although I thought of you because mine went off a couple times, and I was like, oh, shit. And I was trying to hide it. I'll just put it back in my fiance's lap. All right. <laughs> <laughs> let's get, let's get a, all Sorry. Right. Sorry, Jen. I knew I was, I was fucked up as soon as I said it. All right. So he tells the Nazis that the lance is fake, but he's got his hands on half the Antikythera d- dial. Antikythera? Ant- I, I already forget how to say it. Am I saying that right, guys? I'm asking. Antikythera? And ticket the... whatever. And he's then confronted by Voller? 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 Voller?
0: Voler,
3: well, we can go with uh, Klaus Schmidt, which they fucking stole from X Men First Class. <laughs> you think <laughs> that's Shaw's alias?
2: He's then confronted yeah. by Voler, who get who nearly gets his head taken off.
1: I thought the entire time, and I was convinced that she was not going to be goddaughter. I thought, I thought wow, sorry, <laughs> weird accent popped out. I I thought Disney. Should I go on
2: with the plot? I'll go ahead and go on with the plot. He'll he'll jump in. <laughs> You're laughing like there's a plot to go through.
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: There's, there's just two and a half hours <laughs> of noise. As an 80-year-old man, he you know, he's in good shape for what he is, still straining the realms of credibility. You all right, Adam? Yeah, sorry. I
1: was expecting a delivery Monday, and I got a text like 20 minutes ago saying, your items are going to be delivered here shortly. Nothing big, just a giant piece of outdoor freaking furniture. (laughs) So this freight truck just showed up outside. I'm like, "Uh, Monday? Next Monday? (sighs) Okay. You all right? Yeah, sorry, no. Ran down, like, grabbed my furniture dolly, ran to the back, ran upstairs. Yeah, sorry. No,
2: you're fine. You're fine. We were just talking about... Go ahead. I was just
3: talking about old men running. So it's
1: perfect. Yeah,
2: it's perfect. (laughs) 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 Matt was just talking about the physicality of Indy and how his punches at 80 would not have the same effect as they do here, although they're trying to sell that, and the fact that, um, that Helena is much more physical because she's a female. All right, go.
1: It feels like in the last five years, there was five different versions of this movie that was written.
2: I'm sure there were. Yeah, I detailed that in the beginning of this podcast. Where were you, Adam? <laughs> getting your Getting your long chair, I take it. <laughs> I fucking hate this character as much as Matt hates Helena. Adam, why don't you go first since I I uh,
3: spoke about Helena before you did.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, you know who this character is? He's he's not even Yeah. He, uh, he, been, uh, he stole, he's Jason Todd.
2: In Raiders, it was the guy, it was, um, God damn I'm, I'm forgetting names this time, all this time. Uh, the guy in the beginning, God damn it, um, uh, Doc yeah, Ock. Doc Ock, yeah, Alfred Molina. Yeah, in Raiders, it was Alfred Molina who stabbed him back. Like, we have to have these. I don't mind her as a foil for Indy. That's the only thing I say, is I, I think she plays off Indy okay. Now, we talked about this with, what's his face, his character last week? What, what was his name? I, I always forget oh, uh, his name.
3: Uh, uh, Ray Winstone's character?
2: Yeah, we in, we talked about this with Ray Winstone last week.
1: However, I will say, and I can admit this, I'm a little more forgiving because I find her hot as hell, and the accent works for me. So, to me,
2: she, of course, you do.
1: I, to me, she, she put her in Star Wars because she was a, she's a more attractive Ray.
3: She, like,
2: she, she, she was in
3: She was really Star Wars. She isn't Star Wars. We'll get the to Solo. No Solo, second best part yeah. of the film.
2: Oh, God. Who was it that Adam was madly crushing on? I was editing that show Karen and I Allen. put it on as Just a wait the head. Yeah. Movie. Yeah. God damn. We found this new crush.
0: <sighs>
3: <laughs> yeah, the, the same British snark you can find outside a big den when you interview any tourist. She's got all the individuality of an antique shop. <laughs> <laughs> I think this Mission Impossible a new one is like 245. Oh, oh fuck. Is it Damn, and It's a part one.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean,
1: Spider-Verse, I, I
2: guess an, it's an, an animated, animated movie was that was two and
3: a half. Yeah, Spider-Verse was two and a half hours. That's animated.
2: That Mission Impossible trailer played before this, and my friend who was with us looked at me and goes, "This is that's part one? <laughs>
0: <I'm> like, yeah, <laughs>
3: part one. Part two, we're going to see Tom Cruise literally die on screen from a stunt. So, I, Yeah. I, 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 by the way, if that movie sucks, I'm going to be like in a depressive state for like three weeks. I agree. <laughs> Especially after this garbage.
2: <laughs> I haven't heard Matt this angry in a long time. <laughs>